0: Hello everyone, welcome to another weekly episode of Inking Out Loud. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And, once again, we have our sound engineer, Pat McCaffrey. Pat, what's up, man? In the house. (laughs) And we're going to spend episode 58, that's the episode number today, we're going to be wrapping up our read of Robert Jordan's Knife of Dreams, the 11th volume in the Wheel of Time series. So, without anything further ado, at the moment on my end drew tell us what went down
1: okay so uh we pick up with a bang uh we start off with nynaeve tricking lan into crossing the borderlands and then traveling ahead of him to rally the survivors of Malkier in one of the greatest scenes robert jordan ever wrote And then uh, we go from there to uh, brief chapters with Rand uh, revisiting Tyr. And then with the Seafolk. And we find out that the Amayar have committed mass suicide in the wake of the cleansing. Mm -hmm. uh, Which we'll talk about again in a little bit. Yeah, they know how to party. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. Uh, And then we move to Egwene her one like full chapter in the book honey in the tea where she is uh demoted to a novice in the white tower dosed with fork and she begins her work um undermining Elida from inside the tower uh we move from there back to matt very briefly where matt reconnects with talmanis and the band of the red hand uh and then it's back to perrin and fayil where Perrin finally attacks the Shido, and Fail is finally rescued.
0: Finally. Finally, yeah.
1: And then moving from there, we go to Elaine, where she finally breaks the siege and finally gets the support to become Queen of Andor and win the Succession War.
2: Finally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Then
1: we, uh, we stop in briefly with Furet Karid as he is hunting down Tuan, and then uh, Matt and Tuan get married. Matt lets Tuan go back to Ebu-Dar with fear karid and fights a battle. And then we get uh, a chilling epilogue where Pavara and the Red Sisters arrive at the Black Tower to negotiate the bonding of Ashaman. And we are left with Mazrum Taim saying, let the Lord of Chaos rule. And that's the end of the last book that Robert Jordan wrote for The Wheel of Time.
0: Chilling, but I wouldn't say surprising at this point because uh, Taim's no. been a sketchy son of a bitch up through everything we've seen him at this point. Even when we first met him, he's still sketchy as hell. I didn't even think he any notes about Taim. I do want to discuss Taim later. Remind me of that. Like, he's introduced in
2: mystery and then wrapped in layers of uh, a sinister garb. Mm-hmm. And this is the, like, donning the sinister crown.
1: Well, I. I... Vividly remember when this book first came out, and getting that scene in Taim's palace, and how everything is red and black, and he says, "Let the Lord of Chaos rule." And so many people were freaking out, being like, "Wait, is Taim Moradin?" You know. Well, those are
0: standing <laughs> orders. Come on now.
1: Uh, but they're, you know, they're, the red and black colors there, which are Moradin's colors, and so of, of course he's not Moradin, but uh, but that was a
0: yeah, right. A
1: common theory in the feverish weeks yes. after this book came I out. I think I
0: remember <sighs> retorting, though, that, I mean, we know that Mordan has two servants who also wear his mm-hmm. colors, right? Like, that doesn't necessarily mean he has to be Moradin. I did find that a little well, well, unfeasible so at first. I didn't understand I, I will that. i when... push
1: back on that. Taim does not wear the colors. The colors decorate his palace. Okay, but fair enough. Wears a black coat with blue and gold dragons on right. the sleeves. black
0: and blue. Okay, that's right. Mm-hmm. Huh?
1: Yeah. Huh. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, we should. I think we should jump right into style though before we go further down the Swan dive
0: Right into that one for sure. Um, should we talk about pacing? That's probably gonna
1: take yes. up the most
0: of our style discussions here. Drew, start us off. How did you feel about the pacing of this book and how it compares <laughs> likely favorably oh, to... Yeah, <laughs> oh, is breakneck. Yeah, Crossroads Breakneck.
1: I mean, it, it, it makes sense, and the way uh, Robert Jordan was able to make this happen, make this book so exciting, and just one thing after another, after another, after another, is because Crossroads was all set up for it. All of the exposition and rising action for these plot lines happens in crossroads, basically. And then all the climaxes are in Knife of Dreams. And the result of that is, you know, as we talked about on our crossroads episode, maybe a flawed book there, but Knife of Dreams resultingly is just full of fireworks. It's explosive.
0: <laughs> really? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's 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 really, really cool. It's one that I read a hell of a lot more than anything else in the seven through eleven I say eight through eleven cycle um knife of dreams had some of my favorite moments for rand in the entire series like i just oh my god it was so cool um but uh it's rewarding seeing seeing rand telling his vassals for you know finally saying it's time the last battle is imminent begin your preparations we march to sheol ghoul that's Mm -hmm. just like oh man 13 14 15 year old rob is reading that and just pumping himself up in his chair and he's getting so excited I love the pacing. Uh, I will, you know, I will also
1: add, I forgot to—I don't know how—I forgot to mention this in my recap. But Rand lost his hand.
0: Yeah, yeah. You also forgot to mention that Matt is officially married now. Oh, uh, I said that. Did you? Mm-hmm. you did. I must have. Oh my god! Look at me feeling like an soul. <laughs> okay. But yeah, Rand has lost his hand. Mm. That's some, that's yeah, some crazy yeah. stuff. Kind of gives a whole lot more uh, meaning to that prophecy we got in book two as well—the dark prophecy, which hand shelters and witch hand slays, right? Ooh, yeah, I like that connection. Yeah, <laughs> really? I Did you not I like really consider that, that before?
2: Wow. And the hand that shelters is the hand that got blown off.
0: Because well, Rand thinks at one point is he it? goes, yeah. which one is it that he had lost?
2: Yeah. Ah, interesting.
0: Right? Yeah. I love that. that. I love all that imagery. I,
2: I, I totally
0: missed that. But, mm. well, thank you for pointing that out. Ah, right? no problem, man. I'm glad I could do it for once coming from me instead of actually learning something.
2: <laughs> well, that's... <laughs> That's what you get when you read The Wheel of Time yep. because as an, of all the convolutions. Yeah.
0: And as an aside, I really want to write a metal track now. Pat, you'll, rec- you'll, you'll definitely be on track with this. I want to write a metal track called To Sheol Ghoul. How freaking oh, yeah. cool would that, that be, man? Or maybe just into Sheol yeah. Ghoul itself. Or, or To Sheol Ghoul itself. Who is it that just consistently... Was that Darlin that said that? To Sheol Ghoul itself? Oh, uh, yeah. I think That's getting right. on my nerves now. Uh, it's in the...
1: Yeah, I think you're right. It's in that, that one that, chapter.
2: That does sound like Darlin.
1: Um,
0: Something he would say for sure.
2: Yeah,
1: when, when Rand goes back into the stone...
2: Um, As an aside, Rob, I have made several attempts at writing Wheel of Time metal songs. they <laughs> not really come to fruition yet, but it's still very much on Same. my to-do list.
0: I've got, like... 10 or 15 different riffs that I want to apply to Wheel of Time something that I never got around to actually constructing whole songs for because I can't drum for sh- I can't drum at all. I'm just a guitar player.
1: Hmm.
0: But so are you, right? Oh, yeah. Um, but I have a guy. Oh, you have a guy? <laughs> oh, for my future visit, uh-huh. we're going to have to write this metal track, man. Hell yeah, <laughs> man.
2: Let's do it. And I we can like find MIDI, somebody uh... to
0: mix and master it, eh? <clears throat> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, Drew. If only. Drew sounds like he's chopping at the bit here. What's up?
1: No, I, I was just uh, I was just kind of amused by your little oh. side discussion here. Yeah, um, I thought you had found was, what you were looking was, for. No, I'm just trying to flip through quickly, but I, I haven't found the exact quote. Um, so this is like this not, is not the biggest deal in the world. Uh, yeah.
0: But you know the sentiment I'm trying to get across. I just love that line. I love how it ends the scene. I just love everything. I love the momentum that it's building. It's just, oh my god, I was so ready for The Gathering Storm when it came out. Really rewarding. Speaking of, you know, as part of the oh, yeah. style
2: discussion, I wanted to mention that, like, while a lot of things are climaxing in this book, the fact that they're climaxing is by itself setting up um, even more. Oh, yeah. Which is, a, like, that's the way to do it.
1: It's the, like the fallout, the consequences of each of the major climaxes here are uh, situations which bolster the forces of the light. Where Elaine finally you know, concludes her succession war, but that means that Rand now has Andor united and ready to fight by mm-hmm. his side. Matt finally gets married to Tuon, and the result of that is, you know, Rand now has one of like his yeah. best friends and a Tavirin married and has that link to the ever-victorious army. And then Perrin finally rescues Fail, and the result of that, of course, the are dispersed, but Perrin's army has swelled in size. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah. you know, it, it, and that, of course, lays the very first uh, building <coughs> block for the rest of Perrin's kind of character arc up through Gathering Storm and Terrors of Midnight. So it, it's, it's really deftly done how these are long-awaited, climactic moments, and yet they're not just like a hard stop they open up further doorways for story
2: it, it really does feel um that that they have finally gotten some annoying chores out of the way and now the real work <laughs> has begun yeah. especially with elaine oh my gosh oh. for the reasons we've beaten to death we need not go into again
0: I might go into yeah. it a little more yeah. later in this
2: episode, but who knows? Yeah, this is this is definitely... Oh, I
0: don't uh... plan to not riff on it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> this um is
1: definitely a major character
0: point to discuss. <laughs> before we leave our style discussions, though, there's still something else I want to talk about, and that's the lack of anything even resembling humor in Rand's points of view now. Because, like, ah. I mean, we can be honest, there hasn't been much for a couple of books now, but... The other characters still have seemed, you know, content to crack jokes in his presence. You know, there's none of that here. Not anymore. And I'd originally saved this talking point for my character discussion on Rand for this episode. But I think this particular point still belongs in our style discussion because I want us to think about Jordan's approach to writing his main character here. And I wrote down, any reader knows that to have a sympathetic protagonist, they need to have motivations. They need to have desires. It It makes him human. Any writer knows that to have a functional character, they need to have flaws to balance their virtues. But in Jordan's case, he's demonstrated, it takes a master to write a main character without any apparent desires, with no ability to laugh, no ability to enjoy themselves, and still make us enjoy reading them. And I wanted to ask how you felt, both of you, Drew and Pat, about Jordan taking away, like even something as simple as basic humor from such a prominent character and what he did to balance it.
1: Yeah, that's actually a really good point and not one I had considered before. Because uh, even while Rand gets harder and harder over you know the kind of middle portion of this series, we do still have brief moments where Randall crack a joke and the people around him are like you know, kind of discombobulated by yeah, it. That's a joke and, for us. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And and then of course there's, you know, the Vintage scene in Lord of Chaos where he's trying to explain humor to the Aiel and mm-hmm. and things like that. But as we get into this book, there is just none of that there. Rand is all business <clears throat> all the time. And he's just he's so busy worrying about the last battle, worrying about lose Theron, worrying about losing control that he doesn't have time to even consider like being offhandedly sarcastic or something like yeah,
0: that yeah well, even more than that it's, it's it's how it affects everybody around him as well because i mean he was he was getting pretty moody and pretty dark through book seven book eight book nine and book ten mm-hmm. but during those books at least everyone else especially min was still trying to make him laugh was still cracking jokes and seeing if it would get a response and he was just deadpanning it the whole time but now we're at the point where even everybody else is starting to get dragged down by this aura this this kind of weight behind everything he does and how he just has no patience for it. It's just, it kind of breaks my heart that everybody in his vicinity is also being affected by this too. It just, it sucks. It's it's the aftermath of the events of
2: Winter's Heart really is what we're seeing. What, you mean like his imprisonment in, in farmatting? is His imprisonment and the cleansing. Like, the cleansing as an ordeal, let's say.
0: Okay, you'd think On he'd be in a better mood after that. that though, right? They'd crack another joke that morning or something, you know? Like, Walk with yeah, a a but step. there was also the imprisonment. Yeah. If it wasn't for the imprisonment, maybe. yeah, adding yeah, did a
2: number on him, for yeah. sure.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm just, I guess what I'm trying to say is I would have hoped that cleansing the male half oh. of the source yeah. and writing that mistake that he made in his hubris 3,000 years previously and broke the world with, that might have been like a, maybe something to balance being imprisoned for a couple days.
1: <laughs> yeah, I no, that, I mean, logically, yes. That's not how Rand... No, it's not. He's so fatalistic, and I, that's you know, what yeah. bums
0: me out, yeah.
1: So, uh, but I think this is a good segue into character discussion yeah, here. I agree. Because this book gives us another major, major point, well, really two, to further Rand's fatalistic tendencies and set up the Rand that we're going to get at his darkest in the next book. Yeah. And I'm... those two are when he, quote-unquote, loses control of Saedine to lose Theron. Uh, during the Manor Battle in Vows, and and his memories of Luce Theron are directing his weaves, and and it's an awesome, awesome battle scene. You know, just one of those moments in the Wheel of Time that I can't wait to see on the big screen.
0: Uh, oh,
1: us oh, chills. A, about it. Or the small screen, rather. Uh, <laughs>
0: uh, the screen. Yeah, the, the screen. I'll probably watch it I'm on a five inch screen on my Galaxy S8. Yeah. I, I, I have a
1: I have a pretty big screen at home that I'll be watching it on, but uh, <laughs> uh, but so while it's it's reminiscent of Doom As Wells in a way where it's this really awesome, you know Brand uh, Brandon Sanderson's Zeroeth Law, air on the side of awesome, rule of cool, whatever moment that like people fixate that. on. But like Doom As Wells, it has an undercurrent of something really, really bad happening at the same time. And yeah. it's easy to lose sight of that with all the fireworks going on where you're like oh that's so cool blossoms of fire death gates awesome you know they just killed a hundred thousand Trollocs in like 20 minutes oh so great and then you realize like what does this mean for rand's psyche that he has for the first time felt like he lost control to lose theron that lose theron was the one who seized cydine and not him
2: right you know and then on top of that He loses a hand in an act of treachery, where he had optimistic and he had hopes,
1: and even more than that, he loses his hand because of Min. Yeah,
2: yeah, because he has to protect
1: her. Yeah, and that just like it's another nail in that coffin for how Rand is acting to and around other people, like. That he's recognizing this is a seriously major fatal flaw that I have. Yeah, and of, of course, it would have been smart if he had just been
2: like, "No, you're not coming with me." End of story. But would have been smart yeah. if she knew that she shouldn't insist on coming where she doesn't belong. But yeah, yeah. And this yep.
1: this scene, you know, we, we could go back all the way like to the beginning of of our uh, episodes, Rob. If you remember that I said I didn't like men. And this oh, I a remember a part of it. Yeah. Uh she over the last couple of books, she hasn't made much of a perceivable difference in Rand's mental state and here she is the cause of Rand losing his hand. So it's like
0: she's Well, just, no, uh, come on, Semirag is the reason Rand lost his hand. You can't well, blame like, Min yeah, for that. Yeah, but Rand
1: yeah, but he could have dodged it if he Min hadn't been there.
0: But the fact yeah. that you put that on Min before Semirag is like what?
1: Is well, that... I mean, I'm not saying like okay, Min sorry, is the one who's to Maybe I'm kind of jumping
0: the gun off, off, on but... that one. Sorry, go <laughs> continue. I th- it sounded like Pat was going to jump in there. I didn't mean to cut him off. But well,
2: uh, Drew and I speak with one voice as far as this issue is concerned. Mm, <laughs> so mm. was, what did Min do wrong? She insisted. On she insisted on, to the on going
1: in a in a situation that she had no business being in. Well, and she could have because of, of her some presence of there. there.
0: Perhaps. Like See, bi- here's the thing. What same logical here's... business that she have with his meetings with the Aes Sedai and Lord of Chaos?
2: No, Min is Min is completely useless, and her viewings are completely useless because <laughs> what she sees is going to happen anyway. There is no changing it, as has been established. So whether she sees it or not, or whether the reader knows about it or not, all of the stuff is going to happen. It's just reading the book, you know. So, <laughs> we got a lot more philosophical like, about Min than I expected to get. It's a good point, though. It's a good, it is a good she, point. Yeah, like, she is written and she's in the book in the first place to tease the reader with things which is fine as far as it Mm -hmm. goes uh it doesn't warrant a place she will eventually find a use
1: uh in another couple of books here but yeah but
2: even that has the same problems that well no i just mentioned
1: the 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 scholar part where Ah, she's the one who figures out Mm. exactly what calendar is um but but you know like that's that's like a true use as a character like having utility that's reserved for like books 12, 13, and fourteen at the end of a fourteen book series <laughs> you know and so like like I get that people argue in her favor because she's like oh she's the one who humanizes Rand she's the one who treats Rand like the uncouth
0: I've made or-. that same statement before yeah. myself yeah
1: but there's no perceivable effect for like there's no there's no real good that comes out of that for Rand's mental state he continues to go downhill hmm. despite that it's like like maybe there was a mitigating factor i don't know like you, you could argue that he would have gone downhill faster or harder had she not been around yeah. but i i mean it just it's tough for me to see much value in min as a hmm. as a character in this series and then that's not to go into the fact that I don't like her personality. Right. But
2: uh, <laughs> but it is the last... Min is the last vestige that he doesn't really give up um, uh, on uh, on enjoying certain things. Like, they're still intimate, I gather. Uh, um, very
1: clearly in this
0: book. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you mean? Matt's did I, like... Did I miss something?
1: Matt Brings keeps, like, every time he thinks of Ran, Ran is and Ran Min are going laid? at it.
0: Oh, damn. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, like I one that of the detail.
1: first times he sees yeah. the colors, yeah. Rand and men are like naked making out next to a bed, and Matt's like, oh,
0: <laughs> "That would, oh god." To that. See, that's one of those ultimate nightmare scenarios. It's like, don't think about pink elephants. Yeah. How do you? Oh st- man, that poor man. But then yeah, again, you know, yeah. it's it's probably you gotta be saying the same thing for those who are bonded to him as well, like Alana, like uh, mm, well, Elaine. Well, she like, can at least end, mask but, the bond. Yeah,
2: but uh, you you also like I, I love what you brought up rob about like the jokes and what because because it that's one of the threads that tie into this subtle undercurrent mm-hmm. of what's going on with rand and it's it's not just it's not just the jokes like there'll be scenes in other books where rand is enjoying a pipe or a drink or yeah. a meal yeah.
0: yeah yeah you know i hadn't even considered Quiet that i was just talking about humor
2: myself but mm, mm. that's a good point well and Jordan and Tolkien, incidentally, really use things like that to ground the world and to give a sense of goodness and rightness mm-hmm. that people can enjoy these simple things and to establish that over many, many books and then just slowly start eroding it.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, to that point, this is a great thing to bring up, uh, which again, I hadn't even considered the like overarching thematic importance of this. Things like wine, simple mm. pleasures, a wine, an ale, a pipe, a good meal, a hearty homemade meal, are becoming harder and harder to acquire in the world because things are spoiling. Yeah. Yeah. And that is tied back to Rand and his like emotional and spiritual state because the dragon is one with the land. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's this you know recursive cycle where the worse Rand gets. The worse the world gets and the fewer things there are for rand to appreciate and the worse he gets and so on and so yeah. forth
0: no absolutely and you get the vicious cycle
2: yeah
0: yeah, yeah. no and the, like things are and the, on top of that things are really starting to fall apart for rand at, at this point in the series <clears throat> in stark contrast to certain sequences that we loved in the last three books particularly in my case in crown of swords yeah he he finds out <clears throat> first off pardon me that Weirmon and aniela are a thousand yes. miles from where they're supposed to be yep. and they've bungled his negotiations with the rebels and tear. He learns that I get on the other hand, we have cinnamon and Tolmoran and a whole bunch of others that are up to a lot of the same, you know, just leaving the responsibilities behind in Iliam. The, the borderlanders are still not guarding the blight. The black tower is now dangerous, too dangerous for him to visit. And it's like in light of all this, or <laughs> if you'll forgive the expression, the lack thereof in all of this. It's no wonder that Ran has no time for both, like, having fun. You
2: know? Yeah. In any yeah. sense of the word.
0: Yeah. So depressing.
2: The weight of power. And it's another theme is that he's getting uh-huh. more and more powerful all the time.
1: But he's struggling with that power, of yeah. course. It's, yeah. you know, because as he loses trust... Uh, you know, this is something we talked about, I think, in um, Lord of Chaos and A Crown of Swords, where Rand is starting to learn to delegate. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And here, we're seeing him, like, in this awful middle ground where he doesn't have anybody close to him that he trusts enough to delegate, but he has to because he can't do anything himself, and the result is his lieutenants... Are shirking their responsibilities and mm-hmm. things are falling apart because of it for certain reasons. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, Weirmon and Aniela specifically, but <laughs> uh, and and I just I just want to yep. put out like a another um, on appreciation moment.
0: Like oh, a Weirmon appreciation. A great mind?
1: dark friend.
0: Like oh, okay, I, yeah, no, he's a great un, until, dark until okay
1: until that moment. In Towers of Midnight, when you, like, see his true colors, I was so exhausted <laughs> every time Wiramod showed up on the page because he's blindingly incompetent. Yeah. He's just, he's so stupid, he's so arrogant, and, and, like, smarmy, and all of this. <laughs> that like
0: That was no word I was prepared to hear today.
1: Oh, I can't stand him. And then you see him. Like as soon as the game is up, mm. he like he just changes completely, and you're like, "Oh, that was all an act, and what a great act it was." He went the whole time without Rand and suspecting that he was purposely to... being incompetent
2: to <laughs> screw up Rand's plans. Are, do you mean that you didn't know Wireman was a dark friend no, until we, the Towers of Midnight? No, we did. Okay, I was like, whoa, so we whoa, whoa, we whoa.
1: first find out, or we're at least given a hint that he's a dark friend in Path the of Path Daggers. of Daggers when yep. he's talking with Gethryn. That's Gedwin. a big hint, because yeah. <laughs> uh, the mask is off at that point. Y- yes, hmm. yeah, but it, it's it's off, but it's off in a way that you can still um, justify it with the way you understand Weiramon's character of this like arrogant mm. kind of jerk. Fool. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like, man, what a clever act. Yeah. what a clever act that he he could have screwed up so much he almost got Rand killed in the Path of Daggers
0: credit where credit mm-hmm. is due am I right? You know, <laughs> is,
1: yeah. that, and is that so, your point that
0: you're making here? yeah
1: Like. Yeah. Hard to <laughs> to argue with. I, I don't know, he's, he's low-key one of the most effective Dark Friends in the series hell yeah <laughs> if, the, if the rest of the Dark Friends had been one-tenth as competent the light would never have seen yeah. a chance like, like, <laughs> consider how many thousands of Rand soldiers uh, Wiramon got killed attacking Ilion on his own, yeah. ignoring Rand's orders to to hold, and he just yeah. like, no, I'm gonna go take these border forts, and Samael <laughs> slaughters them all. Yeah, yeah like, it's,
0: and still to to keep that balance going for long enough that Rand doesn't just immediately execute him out of frustration.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like that's
0: a delicate balance to walk when you're dealing with the Dragon Reborn. Yeah, you're right. I, you yeah. know what? I hadn't really considered him in that light. I still consider him as a fool in a lot of ways, but when you when you when you put it this way, it's really. It's really hard not to agree. It really is. Like you, yeah. you make a fantastic point. Wiremon is yeah, it's smart. He's a dude.
2: smart dude. He's well, a lot of dude. his
0: arrogance, especially as far as the
2: iel concerned, is not feigned at all.
1: Oh yeah, that is true.
2: So it's partially an act,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and partially just who how he, he is. is. Yeah, yeah. And it just happens to compliment um, itself so well. It's little... Precisely.
1: Yeah, and and he is emblematic of Rand's problem with delegation because like. Rand doesn't really have many other options, right? So he has to trust a guy who is a completely, at least on the surface, incompetent fool. Yeah. And beneath the surface, actively serving Rand's
0: enemies. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, are we done with our Rand discussion? Is there anything else about a Rand author that we want to talk about before we get to the Gathering Uh, Storm? I
1: I have one more thing, and that is Rand no longer has land now. And this is... (laughs) Uh, where we see Rand really start to take a sharp nosedive. Uh, if you remember earlier in in our episodes, I brought up the fact that Lan is a bit of a father stand-in for Rand, and now Rand is at like a, a key moment with his like mental emotional balance, and having a steadying authority presence. A, a a guide stone so to speak in land taken away from him helps accelerate that
2: i i agree i <sighs> think he certainly needs that more like, than he think, needs to think, get
1: think about think about how different things might have been in the gathering storm especially with some of the choices and and the uh affectations Rand takes on if a land were there land doesn't even need to say anything what? And a... Rand sees Land's judgment and realizes oh, I'm being an idiot at certain points in this series. And so like without that, that kind of reigning in, steadying presence going forward, Rand becomes much more
0: unstable. Yeah, you know, I don't think it's always a, a steadying presence though, or a positive influence. Not always, because there was also a distinct moment in Winter's Heart when Rand and Land are kind of butting heads as Rand shows up <clears throat> with you know and, and it meets nine and land and nineive I think it's from Nineveh's point of view she's aware mm-hmm. that there's a tension in the room between Rand and land and they're kind of eyeballing one another realizing that hey you're not the person I thought you were and you are more dangerous than you really yeah. should be and right and and Rand is just yeah. kind of like yeah sorry man like he just kind of accepts it and fatalistically <coughs> again fatalistically we keep beating that word into the ground but I'll say it again. You know, Rand just kind of accepts it. I don't think Lan is one hundred percent of the time a positive. Like, I mean, and it's not. It's through no fault of Lan's. Rand is just being arrogant. He is. He just. Oh yeah, I-
1: I'm not saying Lan is like some panacea where like he is the cure to all of Rand's ills, uh, but he is a steadying presence in Rand's life. Right. And having that taken away, I mean, like steady is just the word for Lan. Right, like I would just argue, <laughs> it's the yeah. word
0: for Tam, which who, who fills in the exact same thing that well, Rand so, later in the but, but that's,
1: well. But that's exactly what I'm saying: is like when Rand lost that steadiness of Tam, leaving the two rivers, Lan became that fill in, that surrogate father, right. okay. that rock okay. for okay. Fair Rand. Okay, enough. And then you know, and so, uh, and we see some of Rand's most unstable moments in the middle of the series when Lan isn't there, in A Crown of Swords, and then Lan comes back. And Rand chills out at mm. the manor house. You know? Yeah. And then Rand leaves and Rand and starts going nature's downhill. Nature's
2: Barrow. Around. And then ma- Nature's yeah. Barrow
0: happens. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah the, the scene that you brought up, Rob, where like they are they acknowledge the possibility of violence between mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. It's a thing that subconsciously happens between males all yeah, the time. Yeah, women don't realize that. And it's actually, it serves a useful purpose. It's like... At least a lot of look don't, it's it's like it do it creates this atmosphere where like all right there are certain things that will not be tolerated otherwise violence will ensue <laughs> and that's one of the reasons why we can have society because we yeah. agree that certain things are not done and yeah there is an implicit threat yeah. of force behind that and like so yeah i could see that having an effect mm-hmm. on rand albeit subconsciously yeah, yeah I, because I mean, because and, and land is, is no match for rent what happened in that scene in, is ninety picked up fight
0: on that signal that all men are constantly signaled are like, sending out twenty another on a frequency <laughs> consistently yeah yeah all the time
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah so that's that was my last point on land <clears throat> um, uh, um, let's let's move to Perrin
0: okay so while you guys you. start discussing Perrin I'm just gonna go pour another drink take us off, we'll be back in 15-20 seconds okay
1: so this is. Finally. I mean, we're, we're going to use the word finally a lot in this episode. <sighs> um, Perrin uh, sort of overcoming his inertia, his emotional inertia, as well as his physical inertia, and moving, making decisions and, and acting upon them. Um, like, one of the things I brought up earlier in, you know, in like... Uh, Winter's heart was that Perrin doesn't have a whole lot of agency, and that's why his chapters are frustrating. Yeah, it's the other people around him are making decisions and and acting upon information, and he's stuck like floundering essentially. Yeah, here he has taken control and he has agency again. Right, he's the one calling the shots, and it it was partially due to Berelain, um. Uh, making the choice to say like you know I'm willing to put this on this thing on hold until we have Fail back mm-hmm. uh, although she still does some underhanded things because that's barely uh, but
2: yeah. Yeah, so. <laughs>
1: but she cedes a lot of authority and a lot of agency to Perrin and and the result is that Perrin you know as much as he likes to say you know that he's a slow moving guy uh, you know contemplative person a slow thought once darkness. he gets that agency back he moves pretty fast <clears throat> he makes the decision to go to Sohebor at the end of yeah. uh, Crossroads of Twilight he makes the decision to meet with the Sean Chan he makes the decision to lay out the battle plan like he's he's calling a lot of the shots in this book especially and the result is finally you know the dispersal of the Shido and the Faiyul
2: breaking yeah. out at the same time as Perrin opens an avenue for her to fully escape. Now, I don't know if what Berylaine, the positive effect that Berylaine's actions are intentional on her part, but she understands that people are looking to Perrin for leadership, and he is actually responsible for a great number of people, although he doesn't want it. And yes. she knows that just mm-hmm. telling him, look, you have to do this because these people are relying on you isn't going to work. Yep. So she kind of nudges uh, very certain, much certain decisions.
1: Yeah, Berelain is an intelligent woman. I mean, oh, she, she I knows am.
2: how to play the game,
1: and she also knows when uh, when to cede importance to things that are greater than her own desires. Yeah, uh, because that is something she's been dealing with as the ruler of Mayne. You know, basically her
2: whole life. Yeah, I have nothing against Berelain.
1: I mean, I have some things. Oh come Baralain. on! I mean, yeah.
2: there's a few things that I have against Berelain.
0: She,
1: she is actively trying to ruin a marriage. So, yeah,
0: well, <laughs> and she's being actively imperative. dishonest and making everyone think that he's being unfaithful, like that's pretty yeah, yeah. And low. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but they're... she
2: was interested in Perrin before she was ma- before he was married. So oh, that
0: justifies it. Yeah. Sorry, never mind.
2: He was still in a relationship. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, but maybe I just like the fantasy of putting myself in Perrin's shoes and then barreling <laughs> come out. Can a... I not have this? Can yeah, I not good. have this one thing? Uh,
1: but but I will say it's like it was in this book, really. That and maybe a little bit in the the latter half of Crusters of Twilight. That I started to appreciate Bear Lane because she became more than just the, like, jealous um, love triangle counterpart yeah. for Fayil. Like, her character started acting in different ways and having different effects on the plot and the story. Mm-hmm. And it was then that you get, like, more than just the little hints from, like, Lord of Chaos and Crown of Swords. When you find out, like, oh, Ruark really respects her, and the Wise Ones like her, mm-hmm. and Ruark, you're like, okay, that's a signifier that there's something of substance here. Yeah. Uh, but here we see that, you know, spelled out right on the page. We see it in action. Uh, quite, quite. Yeah. And so I like that, and and the result is Perrin finally regains his agency and becomes a much right. easier character to read.
0: And the- I just. I just hate how Fylde represents that agency. It's like, oh, God. Like, he has none without her.
2: Mm -hmm. And to the theme that, Mm -hmm. like, where things climax here in this book, they just begin the next set of problems for Perrin. That's like, okay, he got his goal done, and now he just wants to quit. Right. Yeah, he he needs to
1: find his, his, like, motivation again to continue using that agency. Right. Uh, Even though his natural inclination is to just like chill out and spend time
2: on his personal things so we as readers can safely assert that if the whole kidnapping of the sh- with the shadow did not happen perrin probably would never have had the need to to let's say man up so to speak and get things done
0: before it was too late
1: hmm, that's a uh... That's, That's an interesting
0: postulation yeah. there. That's actually a really good thought experiment. I'd like to revisit that when I have more time to consider my aunt. Like, would he? I think I, I have a little, a little more faith in Perrin than that, con- you know, contrary to what I just said about him having absolutely no agency without Fael.
1: Uh, I mean, things certainly would have gone very differently had Perrin arrived in Altara or Giodan <coughs> and collected... Massima opened a gateway back to Kyrian and delivered him to Rand.
2: You know.
0: I, I still, that's one of my points oh, yeah. of contention against Perrin. I don't know why he didn't press the the issue. Like, I'm sorry dude, but if... if because they, that's not Perrin, right?
1: And and that's kind of the point of what we're saying is that... But, like, the torturing Maiel and get... cutting off
0: their limbs is Perrin? Like, I don't... Uh... It's, the, it's the
1: wolf side of Perrin. Yeah, yeah. They, it, and that was, you know, of course, a very important Moment for his development where uh, he recognized his, you know, that his is dependence where he... on violence as an easy out. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, like, if he had done that with Masima, it wasn't, it wouldn't have been so extreme that he would have recognized the folly of it and, and how he has this character flaw that he needs to yeah. address.
0: Yeah. And, you know... It was immediately yeah. following that scene, that <clears throat> that torture scene, where he did throw away the axe, right? Yes, it was. Okay, okay. Yeah, he, so there's he still something accomplished he, there.
1: Found basically he found he enjoyed it. He found he wasn't sickened okay. by what he did, and realized, oh my gosh, like, what is wrong with me? And remembered Elias saying when you start to like it, that's when you'll... feel You know, I away. take
0: a little bit of what I just said back. When I just said that he has absolutely no fa- uh, agency without Fai'il. He did demonstrate in that moment mm, without mm-hmm. Fai'il that he was still able to make a conscious decision about the kind Ooh. of man that he wants to be. Okay, I, I do yeah, I do acknowledge and accept that, yep.
1: And that's what I was saying with like Perrin in Knife of Dreams is that he regains agency in this book where he's the one calling the shots for his army. He's the one who goes out and says, yes, we're going to meet with the Shan Shan... Yes, we're going to use these resources. Here's how we're going to like play in this battle. Here's what we're going to do.
0: Oh, and
1: yeah. Yeah. and he is he is finally grasping that leadership and that
0: agency and acting oh, okay. upon it. Okay, I thought you meant he gets his agency back when Fael gets back. You mean he took agency no, back no. to get her back? He just had to exactly hike up his sleeves and get that job yeah. done. Okay, no, mm, good point. Very good point. You know, what
2: parent reminds me of sometimes is Aslan, the lion. Oh yeah there, i forget which book it is in the chronicles of narnia but one of the children is talking to aslan and uh they ask him are, are you a tame lion and he's like no oh, yeah, no yeah. i am not a tame lion there is no such thing <laughs> per- i can't say i've read them parent is parent is like that like we we get this impression falsely that he's a, a tame wolf hmm. but there is no
0: such thing really Kind of, okay. It goes kind yeah, of against yeah. the definition like of the that. word wolf. Otherwise, it would be a dog. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> Precisely. And parents. Well, no, no matter what parents' flaws
2: are, he's not a dog.
0: Yeah. I do love how contemptuous he is of the dog. Every time he sees dogs, too, the way he does in his head, right. the way he describes yeah. them, too, he's just so contemptuous. He looks down on them so much, just <laughs> yeah, like a yeah. wolf would. That's a nice little. That's a deft little touch that Jordan it just inserts there to increase that world building aspect and you bring out that lack I was oh, gonna yeah, say humanity, but sure. the lack of humanity in, in his character parent, it's, it's pretty cool. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh Rob, do you have anything more on Parent?
0: Uh I did want to say like this, this chapter marks the end, despite the fact that Drew, you just said, this is where he really starts to become a, a, a new person where he, where he starts to take control. I did want to say that this, this marks the end of a significant chapter in his life though. Cause starting in the next part ber- in the next book, he begins this journey of becoming not just a, a worthy leader, but one who accepts that mantle of responsibility, which for him is a big deal. So I love the fact that knife of dreams is kind of that, that end cap there. Um, or like where 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 parent is finally going forward, we can say at this point going forward, it's only uphill in terms of him accepting leadership as right. part of his destiny. Like I, I I love the first scene we pick up on him with him in the next book. I, this is not a big spoiler, of course. He's just underneath a wagon, I believe. Right? He's just like fixing something, doing oh, yeah, something yeah, with yeah. his hands. But he still has a whole stream of people walking up to him and people needing help, and and it's just. It's really cool to see him do both at once. I do like where he's going forward.
1: Yeah, and compare like that scene of, of where he has gotten to with the beginning of for instance Winter's Heart, <laughs> where nobody is telling him what they're thinking and nobody's bringing their problems to him because they they see him as weak, they see him as like disillusioned and all of this stuff and like it it, it is just a matter of him seizing control seizing the control that has been offered to him, right?
0: Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, and my, my, my very, very last thing about Perrin, I just wanted to point this little tad out here. We get a deft little chronological touchstone in chapter 29 here from Perrin's point of view because Masima mentions Rand and Perrin sees the colors and he notices that Rand has lost his hand. And this is the point at which, if I'm not mistaken, going forward, the timelines are, are going to, diverge and overlap a tad and it's going to lead to some potential confusion for new readers going forward mm. so I just wanted to see if you had anything to say about that Drew
1: um no that's a style thing that I'm going to save for the gathering storm
0: okay, okay. Uh, just mark this point as like, where it begins oh yeah
1: all, all it is is when the timeline started diverging in um uh Winter's Heart and, and then especially in Crossroads of Twilight and Knife of Dreams here when clearly things are happening at different paces in the different characters' points of view. Um, Robert Jordan was very careful to seed these things in, where, like, there's a Matt scene where uh, he has the colors appear and he sees Rand <clears throat> talking with Min and Loyal. And and that's, like, in at the beginning of um, uh, Knife of Dreams. And that scene presumably is from when we see... Ran talking with Loyal in Crossroads of Twilight, you know, like it's he he has these little things in there to signify, all right, this is when this happens in relation to that, and we sort of lose those in uh, Gathering Storm of Towers of Midnight, and I think that's yeah, that's something I'll I'll address more yeah. in those episodes, cool. but uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's the end of my parent discussion, though. I do have some to say about Fayil, though. I actually have more to say about Fayil than we do about parents' okay. Uh, okay. Plot line here. So let's get Fayil out of the way. Um, I, I do want to say, uh, well, actually, this first point is technically about more gays. Um, <laughs> yeah. Magdin, If you finally seeing her get to exert herself, and in doing so, save them all by attracting help, like, that was very rewarding. And it's crazy how somebody so weak can affect change with just the appropriate amount of effort I thought that was very vindicating I felt very good for Morgaze in that scene Um,
1: yeah I agree I I actually really enjoy that moment where Morgaze is trying so hard you know overcoming her limitations to do what she can and that such a tiny little thing is the pivotal moment that allows them to get out safely
0: Right, because you learn that Morgaze, I believe Morgaze is the weakest channeler we ever meet in the entirety of the Wheel of Time series, yes? I... Andral's de- got a, a huge count on her, I'm oh, pretty sure. Andral's
1: much stronger than yeah. her. I believe Morgaze is weaker than
0: Sora Lea. Oh, I hadn't considered Sora Lea. Well, Sora Lea could could channel a flame with ease, though. She, uh, you know... And in, in, at the end yeah. of Lord of Chaos, she channeled that flame as that symbol, which was one of my favorite scenes in that whole book. I remember glowing about that, if you'll <laughs> pardon the expression. It's, but yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I don't think uh, uh, Morghese could easily channel a flame like that. It would be a lot more tremulous. It would right. be a lot more unstable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or at I least, think... maybe she might not be weakest, but she's at least experienced. Sorry, go ahead. At least practiced. I think she
1: is the weakest. I'm pretty sure Soralia is stronger than her. But they're, I mean, they're both very, very weak. Um,. Mm. Yeah,
0: I would assume yeah. if there's any difference in strength between the two, it's just in terms of experience. Soralia has at least mm. clearly been, you know, practicing. I kind of wonder.
1: Ability. I wish I had my companion on me right, right now, right behind me, uh, to look up like the uh, one power strength chart to see if Morgase and Soralia are even on it. Like, <laughs>
0: <laughs> would they even register? That's. Just, <clears throat> I think this is a joke that I made in. Um, I want to say it was Winter's Heart and talking about Sa Angrial and talking about, like, being able to compare them or having basic units of power for how much they multiply your power. And I thought, what would uh, be the most accurate, most basic unit of measurement? Would it be, like, Daigions? Would it be, like, Morghese? Morghese
1: is <laughs> is the lowest tier. She is a 72, parenthetical 60. 72. She is the absolute lowest rank in in the one power strength chart. I'm going to look up Soraliyah now.
2: Yeah, if you were one uh, unit. Soraliyah is much, much
0: stronger. Um 60.
1: Uh 50. So in the companion, her level is 57 parenthetical 35, but the math Damn. is off on that. So it would be either 47, 35 or 57, 45. I still don't understand uh, which... the
0: parenthetical. I always ask you about so, this and so... you always explain it to me and then I'm, I forget it by the next time it comes up.
1: Yeah, it, it basically there was like an original strength chart for um, the highest level of Aes Sedai strength before the Wonder Girls came along, and so in that uh, the parenthetical um, that's okay, like you so know that, that would be are... like so 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 the the parenthetical is like the additional twelve above, and the Wonder Girls like Nynaeve is is like. I think she's a 3 and that's plus 9 or plus 10 above like so the in the original chart that Robert Jordan made uh, Elida, Swan, Warane were 1 they were rank 1 what? really? yeah because this was they were the strongest eyes, Sedai before the girls came along like at that time in Eye of the World um and then Wayne, you know, came into the story and she's above that and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but yeah, so Leah is very weak. Um, I, I agree with this article. This guy's arguing that she's probably a 57 out of 72. Um, so she's, but, she, but that still makes her like over a dozen ranks higher than Morgaze. So,
0: yeah. yeah, so yeah, i say as far as Morgaze's strength goes relatively in the one power, if she could channel any less, she wouldn't be channeling. Yeah, correct. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Uh, but we're still yeah. talking about Faile here. We can continue with Faile, unless sorry, was somebody about to jump in there. Just a little. Uh, Go
2: ahead, man. Casual, uh, casual aside that in a series where there's so much of epic proportion, and people, are protagonists and antagonists, wield godlike powers, it's nice to see that sort of Tolkien kind of character, and to quote from *The Return of the King*, when the wise. Fail and falter. It will be the weak and the small who save us. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like gays in my opinion, That's and quaint. a few other characters
0: as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. That that ties back to the point that I made at the beginning. Right here about gays It's just it's insane how someone and it's so gratifying to see somebody so weak affecting change like this just because they put enough effort forth. It's yeah. just it's awesome. Um, it is yeah, the most gratifying yeah okay. about, about Fael herself though I, I do want to <coughs> say it, it, <laughs> it's it's great that she's that she's free now. it's it has been tough to read her captivity. I have sympathized for her in that regard. I don't know how I feel about her fatalistic attitude toward Roland's rescue though. The, the way she thinks I may have to do whatever it takes. It's just he still doesn't read to me like he requires her to be with him, or at least to help her, you know. And he definitely doesn't give me any rapey vibes, or anything like that. He, he might be pushing himself a little, laying it on a little thick, pushing himself a little forward too much, but I don't know if I really, how I feel about Fail's immediate assumptions, like, well, I'm probably gonna have to sleep with this guy. Oh, that, see, that is very much the impression that I got. Like, and I know, Bruce, and I wanted like, to hear you justify that. Like, what gives you that impression that he's I, going to be I a predator in that it's way? It's just...
1: It's like just the way he acts. And, and, it's like, that's such
0: a nebulous predator, thing to say Predator
1: though. is a. Predator is a. um Like. Uh, like he's manipulative. Like he knows he's in a position of power. And maybe you can argue like this is. This does make him a predator. Like he just. He knows he's in a position of power. He knows he has leverage. Like. And he totally wants to get in Fayil's pants. And I, so he's like. I don't know.
0: I oh shit. What was I just about to say? Damn it! Like I agree that he's being inappropriate. I absolutely in agree with. Alright, agree. I agree with the fact that he's being inappropriate. <laughs> but I don't agree with Fial's assumption that. Well, I'm gonna have to get this guy laid. I'm gonna have to give myself up to him. It's like he hasn't really. I don't think he has given her enough reason to make that immediate assumption. He seems to yeah. genuinely care for. I, I don't know. I don't know.
1: Well, okay. See, I don't know how he could genuinely care for her. He barely knows her.
0: Yeah. Well, he hesitated when he heard Perrin's name, despite the fact that he was about to die. He had to defend himself. Yeah, that's
1: like a surface-level detail. He knows he's married to a guy named Perrin. And
0: like, that led to his death. That was instinctual. Like, that was... I don't know. That. Eh. I'm not going to defend him too much. I just, I think Faiyul's being <coughs> a little, a little too critical. Just a tiny bit. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that he's a good person or that he's being appropriate and that he's not doing anything wrong. I just don't think he's earned that immediate judgment. I um, don't
2: see him as rapey, although very inappropriate. Like, like he's no I never got the impression about that, power. He would, that he would resort to force sort or of no, violence no, to get his not. way, which is the way I define rape. Um, whether he would
1: uh, I do not define rape that way. Sorry, define that again. You can I, rape I kind of somebody out there without using drinking. force. Rape is just oh. having sex with somebody without their consent. But, yeah, but, but right, but also... he's
2: trying to get her consent with yeah. underhanded it, fashion. Exactly. Yeah, and if right. she did give her consent, what he did would not be rape. Even ah, if yeah. he was and underhanded in doing it. That's, a, this is a that's very... something because... I mean, yeah, we're, we're getting like really
1: into the weeds here. But like that right. would be something where... you know, Does consent really like is it really consent if it's consent under duress which is what it would have been for Fail here yeah where she saw it as her only option where she's like if I'm gonna escape I have to sleep with this guy
2: like yeah. I think it's a crime of another sort yeah oh, well, I, I again, think there, again there, there are distinctions it. There are distinctions to be made, but that's like a very, yeah. that's a very long and separate conversation. Right, right, right.
0: I think it's still, it's still, it's still warranted a brief discussion, though. Just, I, I wanted to, to get that thought out there. Mm. Um, and I, I originally mm. did not approve of Fahil's decision to hide the truth about Roland from Perrin. Um, but even at that point in my young life, I could still understand the pragmatic reasoning. Um, well, so
1: that's one of the things that, to me, is most damning about Roland. Is that Fail felt the need to hide it?
0: What that's that's like, how that's if, that's if why were... I feel vindicated. That's exactly the opposite for me. Sorry, continue. I'll move no, on afterwards. If he
1: weren't being like predatory about it and weren't um, putting Fael in a situation where she felt like she had to or she may have had to sleep with him, she wouldn't have felt like the guilt over telling Perrin like, oh yeah like this this guy was just nice to me
2: yeah
1: right it's it's not this guy was just nice to me it was i was thinking about sleeping with him because that was the only way out i saw
0: but uh, i don't know with ro- sorry repeat that last that last sentence there if, sorry i, if, I just kind of zoned out
1: if he hadn't been as like um manipulative oh, and overtly interested in now. sex yeah. Then Fayel wouldn't have had any issue telling Perrin, like, "Oh yeah, he was just an Aielman who was friendly to me."
0: See, I, I see it like in almost like, the opposite way, though. And the, the fact that Fayel felt the need to hide from Perrin, the fact that Roland, in in her eyes, wasn't or was kind of like deserved protecting in his memory, like the fact that Fael knew that that would destroy Perrin to learn that he was that he actually killed her rescuer. I think that goes to speak a lot for, but he wasn't for her Roland rescuer? because. Well, he rescued her from the, 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 the rubble. Yeah, but that's like... Mm. They would have died in there. Well, of course, Perrin might have found them, but they didn't know that. Like, he he, he rescued them. Tenuous right like he rescued him <laughs> and the fact that she knows it would ruin him to find out the kind of man that he killed goes to speak volumes for who Roland actually was oh, if, if Roland was know. a predator if said thought to herself oh he really is just like a he's a bad dude he wants some really greasy stuff and I'm not down with that she would have told Perrin straight up and thinking that Perrin's like well Perrin wouldn't have had a huge issue with killing somebody uh, see, who would I, take I, advantage I, of a guy shine like that. The fact that she no, hit it from him. No, but I
1: think the I think the issue was more that Parin or Fahil doesn't want to admit to Perrin that she was considering
0: it. Right. It could have, that that that's that that's also very immature, but that is also very Fial. Oh yeah, I'm not. That's very Fial. That's this, very yeah. Fahil. That's <laughs> a good point. I just I, I think the fact that she decided to hide that from him goes to speak for Roland, and not against him. Hmm. Okay.
1: Okay.
0: Because if Roland was a bad dude, I mean, I think she would have had less trouble telling Perrin that he killed a bad dude. Well, so, but, like,
1: and that's the, the tough thing with Roland, is that he's not just outright a bad dude. Right? Yeah, maybe I'm like, trying like, to paint he, things black or white. He comes across white, way as this, much. like, sort of white knight kind of guy. Like, no, no, um, not white knight. No. Like, like I. It, I
2: it, it, it's sort of too, at, at risk of,
1: of uh, you know waving a red flag to certain online communities he strikes me as a little bit of like an insult
0: (laughs) i wasn't expecting to hear that word today either well so that's
2: exactly the kind of person who would desert their clan and join the shido ah. (laughs)
1: that's 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 why he rubs me the wrong way he's that kind of guy who'd be like who'd be like she didn't sleep with me i did all of this great stuff for her i
0: think you're uh, like i think like, you're making a judgment way too quickly though like i i can I de- that kind of person definitely exists do not misquote me on that that is there are many people the kind out of there that i function. i see roland as i
1: you do got, like, not three see roland books like of
0: that,
2: that kind of roland bullshit yeah like, like i don't, see I don't think like
1: at all. i don't think roland would have done everything he did for fayil if he didn't think he was gonna get in her pants
0: i think he yeah. would have no i think he would have no. and just had a very very bad life and she turned him down afterwards and it would have taken a long okay. time and it would have like it's okay. a very uncomfortable moment. Sorry. here's, here's Sorry. a question that will put okay. all of that to rest hit me with it
2: does he help all of the guys shine that are around with the shido or no just he makes
0: Fahil? a very very strong point in that he's not going to help anybody else until she has first cleared that rubble
2: okay thank you yep.
0: and I, I don't mean
2: just <laughs> fayil's entourage
0: I mean, no, does he act the know. way
2: towards Fayel that he acts to way, the way toward all of the oh, other guy And the answer is that's
0: totally no. He's in love no, with Fayel. He's
2: not in love. Well, with I, no, I said one could argue that. I didn't yeah. say he is. <laughs> I said one could argue that.
0: He thinks uh, he is. One, he could try, one
2: could try. One could try an assault a manor <laughs> house I, I, that I'm contained
1: Randall or Clear movie. ulterior motive in helping her. He yeah, I just don't think that
0: ulterior motive was as sinister as you guys might think it was. I don't think the Mm -hmm. desire
2: to get laid is necessarily sinister. Mm -hmm. I think it is sinister in all of the specific details that are going on in the situation with Roland and Fahil.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: Him being in that that position of power, Fahil being a guy shine and therefore, by the Aiel ways, not uh, a sexual being.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: All of his manipulations, his his offers of assistance just so he can get what he wants, etc., cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah. A few minutes ago, I did say I originally, as a young teenager, I didn't approve, did not approve of Fai'il's mm. decision to hide that truth from, from Perrin about, you know, the entirety about Roland. But I said, I could still understand that reasoning. Now I've slightly changed. I think Fai'il underestimates his growth. It may have shaken him for a few moments to learn that he just killed a man who was himself, claiming to be in love with Fail and that he had also just saved her life apparently moments previously but in time I'm pretty sure Perrin would have come to peace with that fact, to be frank the Shido had been rampage- like, rampaging across the entire world, they've been taking captives for who knows how long it might not have even taken very long for Perrin to get over it a few days perhaps but um, yeah, then again yeah. we would not have another cause for tension in their relationship between him and Fael going forward so yeah. who, I, who knows I, how that would have turned out
2: I think she made the right decision because that means that it's coming to an
0: end. Like,
2: it could have gotten drawn yeah, out longer yeah, than it had. That's also a Because part. she tries to hide it, <laughs> it just
0: it kind of goes away. Because I feel like the away. fact that she hides it keeps it going, because then there's another secret to be told in the future that eventually uh, has to come Yeah,
1: out. but it doesn't... It, it, it doesn't become this long drawn
0: honesty thing, just honesty yeah. be so honest in your relationships everybody come on communication yeah. is key but then again these are 17 <laughs> wow. and 19 20 year olds you so could, they're not you
1: could just say just communicate to everybody in the wheel of time and the <laughs> series would be yeah. nine especially books especially the sure-ish. shadow
0: god damn they, are, they really suck at that the shadow right, they would have, like, have won yeah yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> 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 uh, but so do you have anything else on Fai Yield no nothing else on Fire. Yield I still have
0: a little bit about huh. Matt, a little bit about Elaine, a let's little more Elaine. about Egwene. Let's do Elaine? Yeah, let's do Elaine. Uh, okay. Elaine, right on the heels of because uh, yeah. Not even a little dark part of the episode. Of the
1: episode. Okay. I want to say, like, I, I talked about in Knife of Dreams Part 1, that I thought, like, this was um, part of the most objection or non-objectionable that her first half of Knife of Dreams is, like, some of the most non-objectionable Elaine we get in the series. Where I just, I didn't have a problem with it. The second half of this book is a hundred percent the opposite. I figured. <laughs> yeah. Her I figured. freaking decision to go to Full Moon Street. Yeah. It just, oh, oh, Who did she every... have
0: with her? She had she had Van Dean. She had uh, Corianna? Coriana. Carianna? How the hell do you pronounce Carian? her Who Who was the fourth? There was four, wasn't there? Saritha?
1: Yeah, um, Saritha, yeah.
0: Yeah, okay. One of them's a dark friend. <laughs> yeah. who's gonna be? Bah, bah. And, I love the fact and, that that Van Vandeep like, got to got to kill the the betrayer with a knife. Yeah, yeah. She I, the just, the like, fact like, that, that it wasn't even with the one power. Her sister was killed with the one power, and her killer was killed by something as mundane as a blade. Fuck you. Sorry, I needed to get that out. No.
1: So uh, I. Yes. So Elaine was blindingly stupid.
0: Very. Mm, there's no sugarcoating that one. In her
1: defense, though.
0: What? Your defense. Her, weird.
1: her information was incomplete. She didn't know that there was a second group of Black Aja who just showed up. Right. Like if, if they hadn't shown up when they did, that mission would have succeeded without a hitch. They rolled yep. up in there and we're in control and then they got ambushed. That's part of
0: why why I think
1: it's though. So but yeah, like here's the thing. Like you're dealing with the black Aja you should be wary of an ambush.
0: Yeah. Are like, you going to go in there with a manual and, and stick to it by the t? Like you have was, to be ready for anything. And the decision
1: to leave warders behind,
0: like yes. the people
1: who are specifically there to help protect you from being blindsided, exactly so the thing that happened.
0: Like, oh. there's no sugarcoating this. This woman is a stubborn, reckless idiot. If you if think that Elaine went into hundreds this,
1: hundreds of her guards killed.
0: Yeah. Because if of you think this. That she oh. went into this prepared well enough considering the information that she had. Oh, not yet. Yeah, consider not. also in the the fact that in the space of 3 minutes, Brigitta managed to mount a rescue against the combined might of the Black Aja and Aimlin, who were ready for Aimlin and, and Camelin, who were ready for her at that point. That should tell you something about how effectively Elaine as a channeler of the One Power with backup planned her specific assault for her own part. I hold a very strong grudge against her uh, in particular for taking advantage of Van Deen's fragile emotional state. Because she knew, she knew that Van Deen would just be bloodthirsty enough to immediately agree on that plan. I just, mm-hmm. I, I think that was pretty low. I think Elaine wasn't considering what exactly she was asking at that point. And I do hold a small grudge against Elaine for getting Van Deen killed. Yeah, that's Ice fair. I said, I manipulation. That would be cool to see Van Deen fight in the last battle. <coughs> it was. She was green. Yep.
1: Yep. 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 And you know she had some weaves up her sleeve.
2: Yeah. Now-
0: I She's was the one who presumably
1: taught Moiraine Balefire.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Presumably, I think she would have learned that in book two, On in the Watchers. Yeah. right? Yeah. On the farm with Vandine and Adelina. It's interesting.
2: Yep. Now, um, last episode, a proper I battle. Was with Joss sister experiencing. That'd be a cool episode. Perhaps, perhaps a little bit of confusion, but it is. I, I distinctly remember thinking that Elaine knew. That at least one of the sisters who she was taking
0: with her was a black sister, because of the murder of Adelius. Right, and there's a moment at what point at which point she's trying to figure, she's waiting for somebody to object to the plan, and she's kind of frustrated that, no, that um one of two or neither of two characters objects because that would have given her a hint as to who the Dark Front actually yes. was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I remember that scene.
2: So maybe she didn't know,
0: but there yeah. was she knew somebody a, was a lot. No, of... She knew somebody was, yeah yeah
1: but but there were so many people in their group traveling north that while she was like it was probably one of the eyes said, she couldn't be certain of it right and so
2: like that that casts doubt on yeah you know that makes the plan even more impetuous
0: yeah yeah i'm sorry See, but i, I mean uh, bergitta cannot channel and look at the the rescue she mounted i guess yeah, black aja yeah. who were ready for her you mean it's to tell almost, me elaine couldn't done better with the element of well, surprise well, like come yeah. on yeah, yeah, she
1: definitely could have, but I'm not going to... Like, Brigitte was acting out was of gonna... desperation here. Like, her... Yes, she rescued Elaine,
0: but... Then at again,
1: tremendous cost.
0: Elaine like, was trying to be subtle. Brigitte was not concerned about subtle, uh, subtlety at that point. That's a good point.
1: Yeah, like, there... That, that was not uh, a, a particularly um, deft extraction... <laughs> of Elaine here. Uh, it Ooh. was
0: but
2: yeah. Yeah. yeah
0: I'm <laughs> I'm, th- I'm through talking about her. Okay, yeah, well. that's the only so, point that I had written about Elaine, honestly.
1: I want to talk about Egwene. Okay. And I'm just gonna lead this off by saying this is the best. Hands down. No contest. The best Egwene, we get in the entire series. I love
0: Honey in the Tea. Oh my I, god, I was not ready phenomenal, to that. Okay. Phenomenal. Phenomenal I am so glad that you said that. Because I start off my points by saying, I think this is where Drew and I are going to diverge for a bit. In our opinions no. about Egwene. Nope. Um, and we actually had a commenter on our, in our Inking Out Loud podcast Facebook group today thinking, I hope Drew gives her you know some slack for this part. But Drew, you're saying you definitely do approve of Egwene for this, this sequence.
1: This chapter is Phenomenal. This Good. is when okay. every virtue Egwene has is on full display. She is a complete badass. I I love the way she um like takes her her unique approach to things and tempers it enough that she doesn't you know screw herself over, but still uses it in ways that wrecks everybody who tries to like. Mm. You know, shove her down here. Yeah. This is this is just pure um, like sticking it to the man. It's so good. Yeah, the one scene when it, you know she's
0: sticking it to the man. I think she, that was she does the exactly.
1: fourteen different weaves at one time, and like that that obnoxious accepted is just like you can't <laughs> you can't do <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's like freaking out, and like she's like what do I even do? Like, go get nice and die. With Forkroot, yeah. presumably, right? Yeah, no, it is with Forkroot and she talks That's about how, like the, because there are the seven colors for the balls and the seven colors for the rings and so there's seven and seven, 14 weaves but they're all like really pale and she's like, just because I can't channel a lot of the power doesn't mean I can't split my weaves. Let me show you how much just fighting on a completely. She's oh, just flexing. Yeah. I love it. Oh like, yeah, she, she's like, you're you're trying to lord it over me as some lowly freaking accepted. I'm one of the most accomplished female channelers in the world. Get on my level,
0: bitch.
2: Yeah. yeah like, I, okay. Good. I was
0: gonna say like this is Egwene <laughs> saying, sit the fuck down. Like, yeah.
2: yeah. Do you, you know even, who I am?
0: Yeah. You and you cannot and even observe just,
2: my
1: level. She has all of this bad attitude throughout this chapter, and then. For the first time, the vindication. She takes the sip of the tea, and there's honey in it, and she just has this little smile on her face, yeah. knowing the seeds are planted and they are sprouting. Like it, yeah. Just amazing That's amazing chapter. That moment, amazing with the, like, chapter.
0: The sip and the recognizing of the flavor of honey. That that really reminds me of that scene that I said I think I think was my favorite. It's definitely a top three for. Fires of Heaven, when Rand meets Bashir for the first time, and he learns that he's just acquired 9,000 Saldean horse, and uh-huh. in that, his response is just just to oh, swirl yeah. the wine. You know, that little, that little moment, is just, it's just, it's not little. It appears little, but appearances are so deceiving. I love it. And mm. up until this point in the podcast, through all of our previous episodes, we've been in a relative agreement on how much we dislike Egwene, um, there have been a few points where I decided to speak up for her. I don't remember if you ever have, Drew. I have, I yeah, know. a couple of
1: times, you actually. You've spoken up for her I, a couple times? I think, every time I've surprised you.
0: <laughs> no, I think, I think it was, yeah. I think it was when, um, uh, Dragon she was training Born. with Avienda. Oh, Dragon Reborn. Uh, and, I was going to say and training and with Fires Avienda. Heaven, yeah. When, in the wise, uh, when like they run the Running laps. around the yeah. Wise Ones camp, yeah. Yep. Um, like, Egwene's, like undermining of elida in the tower is just so well executed as a character and as as like just as as a plot point from on jordan's part like in a position of complete powerlessness this character manages to assert herself as a leader and consistently spoke elida's wheel and she only gets better and better at this as we head into the next book this is something actually i will retort with i think Egwene is even better in the gathering storm I don't think oh, this no, is her uh, top yet. I think we'll, her top we'll is there. in the Gathering Storm. We'll, we'll uh, get it, there. Okay, but it's it's also it's still neat to see. It's still very very neat to yeah. see. But the so Gathering we'll, Storm we'll is my favorite. one thing
1: I'll say, like with Egwene in this book, is that when you say she's powerless, she's I not don't l- think that's true. Okay. Yep. Because she still has the world of dreams. She is still in communication. If she, but she wanted, chooses oh, she hasn't. If she, she wanted, she could just say, Hey, I'm in this room. One of y'all, open a gateway. Come get me.
0: Is this not the novel where where uh, Egwene tells that it is. Elida that she has access oh, to the World no. of Dreams? Uh, well, so she tells
1: the Aes I Sedai, I, she tells like Katerin al-Rudin at oh, the yeah, beginning, she's like, I'm a dreamer. She tries to warn them of the Shan, Shan attack. attack, yeah. um, and they don't believe her, you know. They just,
0: you know, scoff. Uh, right. off, yeah,
1: of course they Yeah, do. she's like, you can ask Liana, and they're like, well, we will, and if she doesn't back up your story, you're gonna get punished, and... Uh, but no so this is the book that she tells swan don't get me don't come get me."
0: yeah yeah don't come get me yeah
1: so but she has that option if she wanted she could just say hey i am in this room in the novice quarters you all open a gateway and come get me and like the tower has no idea to protect against that like
0: like she'd she'd be out in a moment that that, that that context is why what she does is so badass
1: Exactly, yeah, and so th- this is what I was saying, like where she takes all of her her virtues, all the best things about Egwene, she tempers them enough that they don't become vices, which they do become at certain points in the series, where she goes like so overboard with her strengths that she like becomes very egotistical and, and hypocritical and things. But but here she is so smart and so effective, like it, it's tons of fun to read. Yeah. It, because she's exposing all of the flaws and the arrogance of the establishment of the White Tower. <laughs> like we've been we've been seeing the Aes Sedai grow from these mysterious, super cool magic using, you know, powerful women at the beginning of the series, and then as we get to know them more and more, we realize just how petty and human they are. Yeah. And we've been waiting for Aes Sedai as a whole, as an institution, to get their comeuppance. And yeah. this is when it happens. In, this in is part... When... Yeah. So no, so t- 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 finish your eye. thought. This is when Egwene ex- exposes all the flaws of the tower. Unfortunately, she then forgets what she just exposed in, in a couple <laughs> of books and, and reiterates <laughs> all those flaws, but... Uh, in a couple that's beside the, the point. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the problem
2: reason. with every revolution is not perpetrating the sins of the previous <laughs> regime to a much greater degree. <laughs> yeah, this you know, like, never happened yeah, before. Not once.
1: <laughs> not once. <laughs> but yeah, but no. yeah so I, I
0: I have basically nothing bad to say about Egwene in, in well, this book. A big part of how of why Egwene's attitude here is so effective is just because of the element of surprise like she is expected like this reversal of expectation Mm -hmm. that Egwene is is playing on is brilliant she's expected to become that just this soft-spoken meek trying to avoid any kind of punishment know that she did something wrong and please have mercy on me kind of attitude but she ends up being nothing but competent like she confronts Mm -hmm. Bayonin about her betrayal (coughs) leaving the other woman shaken um, she's yes. chatting with Sylviana, and I'll, I'll admit I found that a little bit like unrealistic—not unrealistic, oh, maybe just surreal. I thought that
1: was so in character. I, I don't know it.
0: the fact that Sylviana's an Aes Sedai as well. The fact that she just mindlessly starts chatting without realizing what Egwene is doing—I mm-hmm. found that to be a little, I don't know,
1: because it's so ingrained in her. So two things: one, it's Aes Sedai are used to people groveling, and when they don't grovel, there's a reason for it. And two, Egwene is really powerful. And okay. okay. Aes Sedai have this ingrained one power hierarchy. And so to Silviana, it's easy for her to slip into you know, these deep-seated expectations when Egwene doesn't act like a novice. She acts like an Aes Sedai. And so Silviana's natural reaction is to treat her like an Aes Sedai who is stronger than her. And so she's like, She's predisposed to converse with Egwene, and then of course she like realized she's like, oh no, like, what am I doing? You know, and and she's like, well, I gotta, I gotta slipper you even more now. You know, I feel
0: like the noticing should have happened right away, though. I'm not saying it shouldn't have happened, but I the def- how long it went on without without Sylviana noticing it kind of makes me go, come on, well, Sylviana. Well, here's, and here's the like
1: the third angle is that Sylviana recognizes the issues at like, at present, in yes. the White Tower, it, and when Egwene is addressing them, Silviana hasn't had this outlet. She's frustrated. True, yeah. You know, and it, so when she has an outlet to, to address her
2: frustrations... Mm-hmm. Egwene is talking about something that genuinely is of interest to Silviana. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And Egwene's approach with all the different Aes Sedai, um, how... Uh, how she works her way into them let's say like you know when she's talking to a brown right she'll have a certain tactic that's different from a green and
1: and we will we will address this again in the gathering storm but But, uh, uh, i
0: can't as a contrast uh, to that though take the novices the novices are not used to operating under this kind of hierarchy of the one power and, and having this expectation of obedience the novices are brand new they're fresh they're weak and they're so reverent of Egwene. It's it's kind of oh, yeah, cool. It's it's kind of like cool, but it's also a little model. How? She is the most punished person in the tower. They just got there. They don't have any context for just she's what is going be. And through. how
1: is she handling the punishment? She's yeah. not buckling under it. She's she is like in this book. She is a paragon of virtue for for the novices. They're like this is somebody you know I can what? only aspire to be
0: like. If they had a competent Amerlin maybe my point would be a little more valid. But the fact that Elida is so clearly unhinged at this point, maybe I shouldn't be so surprised that they would gravitate towards Egwene in the way that they do. Well, and yeah.
2: they're novices. Like, that. their their natural inclination is to look toward authority.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. And, and Egwene in and a white
1: dress find... is kind of
0: hard to see well, visually. But she's
1: one of their number, though. And so That's when they point. see one of their number not only approaching the bearing
0: and authority of full Aes but exceeding them. They're like, wow. This woman is incredible. I can see them being inspired, but reverent yeah. is kind of what bothers me. They're just like But it doesn't happen right oh, away I think, either. I think it's not that
1: reverence easy. Reverence is a natural
0: uh outgrowth of you know being of inspiration. Sure. Okay. You can I could I can see that. Yeah. I'd be tempted to agree. Um that yeah. does wrap up my Aguilian points though.
2: Okay. Uh Pat, did you have anything more? Yeah, I just wanted to mention that this is Egwene's Aiel coming out. In this whole section. Uh huh. Her whole attitude is an Aiel attitude. Uh and that's what rocks the eyes and eye on their phone.
1: It is her interpretation of an Aiel attitude. Sure, sure.
2: <laughs> that,
1: that was Okay. Fair point. The Aiel, the the Aiel get their revenge. I think that leaves us with Matt. Yep. Right? Woo. Because oh my gosh. Everything Matt gentlemen. Sorry in go this, ahead. Oh, it's just perfect. Everything every page of Matt in the second half of this book, really in the whole book, yeah. uh, but especially the second half is just unadulterated brilliance. Like the the moments with Talmanes, the the, the bit with like the black lance <laughs> you know, and, and when he first kisses Tuan...
0: Yeah, and, and he has to redo it. And
1: then, you know, He's his, do it a third entire, time too. his entire campaign that he carries out, this just intricate, exquisitely executed uh, manipulation of the entire Shanchan military in the region, and then the the domestic scene when Furit Kareed shows up <laughs> yeah. and, and... mistakes. mistakes. Tom for Matt oh my gosh (laughs) oh we'll get to in case you all couldn't tell and then and then Matt like we see this is where we get Tuan's impression of Matt where she's like realizing just how layered and flexible and competent and just unexpected he is and it, it comes true we see so many different aspects of Matt in these chapters and the resulting, you know, the climactic battle where he brings to bear gunpowder weapons for the first time and just
0: destroys Yes
1: Elbar's army.
0: Those are
2: gunpowder weapons? I thought they were crossbows. They have dragons.
1: No, they don't they don't have dragons. Well, they have Slingshots with grenades in them, essentially. Right. What? With like shrap... With I only shrap- got the, the,
0: the crossbows that reload seven or eight to, or fire seven or eight times so per he, minute. I didn't he, get the explosive gunpowder. He
1: oh, very okay. much uses the uh, the crossbows.
2: And like, but. Missile, yeah, yeah. mini missile launchers. Okay, with so. Um,
1: tubes. So here is the quote. Uh, yeah. Um. Yeah, he's, he's got um, Win launching the, uh, you know, launching the crossbows and all that. And then as they get closer, where is the line? I
0: love the Sean Chan reaction to those crossbows as well. It's like, oh, so
1: sling men, Win shouted, loose at will, front rank west, loose. And then slingmen along the western rank shifted their sling staffs so they could touch the fuses coming from the stubby cylinders to the slow matches held in their teeth. The dark cylinders flew more than a hundred paces to land among the onrushing horsemen. The slingmen were already fitting more of the cylinders to their slings before the first fell. And then, you know, Aludra had marked each fuse with pieces of thread to indicate different burning times, and each cylinder erupted with a roar and a burst of flame, some on the ground, some as high as a mounted man's head. The explosion was not the real weapon, though a man struck in the face was suddenly headless. No, Alutra had wrapped a layer of hard pebbles around the powder inside each cylinder, and those pierced flesh deeply when they hit. he He's using frag grenades!
0: Yeah. Okay. I love, I love the terminology that they come up with, too, to describe these things that we already know. Slow matches. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I love that. That's so awesome. Yeah. So... Okay, that's a little detail I missed out on.
1: Oh my gosh, just everything Matt. Everything Matt. And then what makes it, what puts it over the top is Furik Kareed. <coughs> the Cup of Calf chapter, when Kareed goes and yeah. meets with, you know, the, the Banner General and, and has this conversation and he's, like, dealing with the, the, like, hostility toward the Death Watch guards and, and kind of throwing his weight around as a, you know outranking the guy like halfway mm. and all that and then and he finally gets the guy to break down what's going on with matt's campaign and he like unrolls the map and he's you know showing him like all the engagements and the movements and things and he's like this is incredible like how is this possible there are so many of them and they think there's like tens of thousands of like because <laughs> it doesn't make sense to them how this could p- be possible with with only the small yeah. couple thousand men that Matt has, it is just so beautifully done. And then, as as Pat said, when Kareed shows up in Matt's camp and starts yep. immediately addressing himself yep. to Tom Marilyn. Tom Marilyn. and, and oh. Tom's sitting there like knuckling his mustache and is like trying not to laugh.
0: <laughs> oh man, you're so close, but you're so far. Yeah.
1: And, and then. Uh, just Fear of Kareed. Getting that scene from Kareed's point of view instead of from Matt's point of view or Tuan's point of view was a stroke of genius. It, yeah. It, it's so good. It's yeah. so good. And then the descriptions were like, he said he feels like Hartha just kicked him in the gut. Yeah. And then he's like, no, no, not Hartha. It feels like Eldazar, my horse, just kicked me in the gut. <laughs> like <laughs> Oh, and, and the fact that Tuan uses... The exact wording, you know, bloody Matrim Cawthon is mm-hmm. my husband. Mm-hmm.
0: It's perfect. <laughs> yeah, And, oh. And, oh, you know, speaking of Tuan, ladies and gentlemen, Matrim Cawthon is a married man. Yep. Let the weeping of every fine maiden ring forlorn across the land from Wurzand <laughs> to Shara. You know, oh, he is taken. So good. <laughs> well, you know what? The thing that makes
2: Matt and his love story so great in this book is Tuan. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the the kind of woman Tuan is, is about the only woman who could actually handle Matt.
0: No, no, no. Oh, I agree yes. with I agree with that. Tuan was definitely at her best in terms of their relationship in this book. I do think I that. I think
1: I don't know if I would say she's the only kind of woman who could handle Matt.
0: I like Aludra. I think I'm still she's shipping Matt and only Aludra. The only
1: kind of woman Matt could be engaged with. Thank I you. Think Thank Matt you. That's a better way to say it. Like Matt would essentially lose interest,
2: yes, he would get bored of Elodra of Tylen. sure, yeah, okay. of yeah. any of yeah of Betsy at the dance he, he you know.
1: Matt needs somebody who can engage him, yeah, on his level, and Tuon, like Matt, is a person of surprising depth,
2: yeah. Speaking of which, Tuon's best line of all time occurs in this book. Do I huh? remind you of your sister toy? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Matt just like, okay, listen up, little one. He's like, all right, he's like, up. he like takes
1: his hat off. He's like, all right, it's was going down. He gonna go down. For a third
0: one, but she stopped him too. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah.
0: And I love how we got that line is amazing. Although
1: that. I will say another one of my favorite Tuon lines, also in this book from the first half, like she. <laughs> P- puts her mug on the table. Guard this until my return. It's like, "What? Where are you going?" She's like, "To do the necessary toy."
0: <laughs> yeah, and for me. Oh, and this book was I, at her best. That there's no two yeah. one I like more than this two one. Going forward, when, I just oh, I'm so yeah. frustrated. When she
1: gets away from the shan shan and all of the bullshit, yes, that, you know in their culture she's she's
0: pretty good. Yeah. She's awesome away from the Shang Chan, but as soon as she gets back in command, she becomes a bitch. She's cold, she's heartless, she's she's a statue. She's disrespect. I just Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wish Matt yeah. could be with Knife of Dreams 2 on. Instead of having I to wish, be with yeah. Fortuona. I wish, I, I, wish I, Knife I of really dreams hate the Matt fact that Matt ended up with for Fortuona nice and not I with am two with one. you, Pat.
2: Yeah. <laughs> eh? Like they're both at their best in this book and then they both 100%. start becoming at yeah. their worst
0: that's how I'll state right. my Game opinion I really yeah. wish Matt had ended up with Tuan not with Fortuona yeah, yeah.
1: right yeah that's that's a, that's
2: a like glimpses of her come out in A Memory of Light but mm-hmm. that's a way mm-hmm. but that's a ways down the road
1: so uh, is that the I end think, of our characters I think that's um, the end of characters I do have a couple of like high level plot points to, sure. to discuss um, and and maybe this can lead into our uh favorite scenes mm. <gasps> favorite no scenes was tough for this book yeah um but I want to talk about um like maybe maybe kind of like a lore blend because I don't have a, t- a ton of like really specific lore things but uh, I want to start off with this chapter directly in the middle of the book mm. to make an anchor weep yeah. where we have this meeting of the wave mistresses and Logane shows up and we find out about the mass suicide of the Amaya. And the lore side of this here is that there was an explosion of theorizing after Crossroads of Twilight because Robert Jordan said that there was going to be a moment in Knife of Dreams... Um a, a shock moment, a moment that like would just crush everybody. And what the f- and and that it was something that he he didn't think anybody had picked up on from events that happened earlier in the series. And so people are like, what like what could this be? you know And it was this scene. It was the mass suicide of the Amir, and so it had been hyped up so much with all the theorizing and everything that when this scene landed, like nobody really cared about the Amir. Yeah, and so it it fell flat. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. I, I didn't really like. I I thought it was a cool way to end uh, Winter's heart, but I, I like when when we learned exactly what happened. I was like, oh. okay, okay. how does that pertain to what our characters are struggling through right now? Like, it really doesn't
2: mean anything. I thought it was sad in an abstract way, but more bizarre than anything else. Oh, right, yeah. Bizarre, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, it
1: it was this huge cognitive dissonance in the fandom, where it was like, we were supposed to think this was the the craziest, saddest thing ever, and then nobody really
0: cared. (laughs) So, here's a question. What, What was the craziest, saddest thing ever, if this wasn't? If you had the to just...
1: saddest moment in the series?
0: The saddest yeah. moment in the
2: series. Moiraine's Ma- death, surely, right? That's no. A... No, that... this is a conversation for another time. Uh, yeah. yeah, I maybe think in, this maybe is a conversation we're going to
1: have in, in, uh, in The Gathering Storm.
2: What? Really?
0: Talking about Captain uh, Sparrow again?
1: No. No, no, Immediately... no. The last that could be done.
0: Oh, yeah, but it turns out all right in a very weird way. Anyway, I don't know. I, maybe, uh, big, maybe the biggest tragedy is what I meant to say. Sorry. Continue. Let's let's let's. But chug so, on
1: though. While while for me, I didn't find that aspect of this chapter hit home at all. One one part of it that did hit home and is one of my favorite lines in the entire series is at the very end of the chapter when Loghain is telling them, like, "Look, you guys gotta, you know." You gotta hold to your bargain. He says, the fastest ships must be sent to every island, blah, 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 you know. And he says, this is as sad a story as I have ever heard. But your ships are committed to Bandar Ebon. Yep. If you don't have enough Rakers, then you must use your other fast ships too. All of them, if necessary. And then Zyda says, are you mad as well as heartless? We must mourn. We must save who we can and mourn for the countless thousands we cannot save. And Logain... Like Tyim mm-hmm. comes down with just the the hammer of a line <laughs> and he says, Mourn if you must, but mourn on the march for Tarmongaidon.
0: Yeah, and that's immediately following the chapter, I think, where Rand tells much the same to Darlin, saying, When Darlin asks, March, where, where are we marching? To Shile uh, it, it is, so. Uh, that momentum. Yeah. Oh, it's just. It, it's... Well,
1: yeah, so he says, But what am I supposed to do in Arad the little I've heard of that land, it's a madhouse. And Rand says Tarmon Gaidon is coming soon. You are going to doman to get ready for Tarmon
0: Gaidon. That's what he says. Yep. Oh. At what point is it where where someone asks him where march where do we march? And he says to Ghul. Maybe it's in the Gathering Storm.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, that that particular line is to,
0: to Ghoul is is, is uh, like the last I three, three words Towers of a Chapter of Midnight actually. Wow. Oh, yes. It's Look when at Rand me. Jumping to the, the gun on that deer. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, um, yeah, because he's there and it meets Tam. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so like, I
1: I just wanted to touch on that chapter because I think that chapter gets lost in the mix because it's it's sandwiched b- between like the two chapters before it are uh, or, or two of the three chapters before it are vows and the golden crane. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. we didn't talk about land. We had a fan request to talk well, about land.
1: Oh, we we'll get to that in favorite scenes. I'm sure. Okay.
0: <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Well, if you're sure, that means it's okay. Got you.
1: Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, and then immediately after that to make an anchor weep, we go and do like Perrin fighting at Malden. And so like, it's, uh, and, and Honey and the Tea and all that. Um, it, it's easy to have that chapter kind of get lost in the mix. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to highlight that. Okay. But. Um, yeah, so Rob, I wanted to ask before we go on, do you have any questions? Do you mean like lore things?
0: I do not. I just have a couple of miscellaneous notes to make here. One of which I've already said, I'm pretty sure. Oh, you know what? Sorry. Scratch what I said. I have one question and it might be a stupid question because I didn't research anything on this. Drew. No stupid questions. Just stupid people. (laughs) Oh, wait. I might, uh, (laughs) I might flip that expectation someday, but I don't think this one's altogether stupid. Why does Rand see these black flecks? after the fireball that like just blasted off his left hand. He sees it was he, he's super bright, it messed up his vision. He see, but he's specifically black flex though. Like, do we not think that perhaps Samuraj... Samirag, I prefer Semirag. Well whatever. Um used the true power in that weaving. Was Sidar detected by anybody noticeably, or did she
1: Uh yeah, Sidar was was used and detected. Um no it, it was <laughs> the black flex are just like his vision was messed up by the brightness of the fireball.
0: Oh, yeah, I remember, because that's what I asked. Was that part of the damage to his eyes? I didn't ask that, so that's what I wrote. Yeah, it, was that it was. part of the damage he, to his eyes?
1: He talks, like, as it goes on, like, he talks about how, yeah. over time, that goes away.
0: It's just the per- it's, it's the terminology of black Flex, specifically those two words mm-hmm. together that we've seen before. I'm just like it makes me suspicious. But then I realize it's probably a stupid question because even if Semiraj was using the true power, why would Rand be seeing black flex? It doesn't really make yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. There I mean, could it be like resonance for, from from I I don't know, but okay, I just wanted to ask to get mm-hmm. to get a confirmation on that. It was just eye damage. He was seeing spots. Right, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um another of Min's viewings has finally come to pass. We have a King of Tier. Yep. Congratulations, Darlin. High Lord Darlin. Um. In my last miscellaneous thought here, I'm glad to see that Van Deen at least got to have brief revenge. And yeah. I mentioned this earlier, I love the fact that it was done with something as simple as a knife, which, oh, actually, what I wrote down was, I love the fact that it was done with a knife, which kind of concerned me about my own thought process in hindsight. But then Chesmal Emery decides to contend for the biggest bitch of the year award. And no bitch was not the first By word that I placed there. <laughs> yep. Yeah, um, but yeah, that's a wrap on Adelius and Vandine. Rest in the light, okay. ladies. So I
1: have I have two sort of minor lore things. To okay. One of them is going back to that two on uh, Helen Mattern scene. Uh, that just I find it an amusing fact. Uh, Robert Jordan received a lot of criticism from fans. You know. You, you could say it's founded you could say it's unfounded people are like it's not realistic you know people don't use the bathroom in in the wheel of time mm-hmm. basically people are being like you need to write more like Game of Thrones you need to write A Song of Ice and Fire where you, you see people like gritty shitting and pissing everywhere like sure and so Robert Jordan of course that's not his style that's not what he cares about telling in his story but as as a sort of a uh, sarcastic nod to them, he wrote in that scene in the hell in Matter, where Tuon's like, "I'm going to the bathroom, Matt." You know, <laughs> is
0: that why that's in there? Are you? That is
1: why it's in there.
0: <laughs> no, that's what? that's
2: a that's the only response people who would make a criticism like that deserve. Because yeah.
0: honestly, yeah, who? Cares. it's yeah. so dumb like, you're not reading read the, books you're reading so I fantasy can get a for a
1: by description of some yeah. guy yes. taking a dump i'm like, reading it on the toilet <laughs> anyway <laughs> you read it. Yeah. so why <laughs> is it that's a good point.
0: <laughs> you read it to escape real life you don't read it just for more of the mundane exactly is yeah, there more anything yeah. more mundane than hiking down your trousers and taking a dump on a sunday morning it's it, that's just yeah it's part of life you don't need to Explain that they're breathing in every single scene. You don't need to explain that they're yeah. cracking their knuckles. You just kind of take it for granted that this stuff is happening in the background. Mm-hmm. It's Not called it, it suspend some imagination.
1: <laughs> so my my other kind of lore
0: point here is is more just a discussion
1: of what it was like as somebody in the Wheel of Time online fandom when this book came out. Okay, and how theorizing hit sort of a, a fever pitch. <sighs> And Demandred was the hot topic.
0: Yeah. Ah, this is the first book that I had to wait for. I remember saying that before too. So we're probably very similar. Continue. So in
1: in the forums, you know, Theoryland, Watmania, and Dragon Mountain stuff like that, raging arguments and discussions about who Demandred was. Because at this point, we had we had (laughs) quotes from Robert Jordan saying, "No, basically, like, no, Taim is not Demandred." I mean, we had the quotes in. He con- uh, was
0: concretely saying that at that point. Um, in two thousand
1: five, I don't remember if that was when. But but certainly in Winter's Heart, we had like direct evidence that Tyne was not Demandred. How so? Uh, when the we, scene we, from Slayer. W- yeah, we have the scene with Slayer where he's like going to kill the couple in bed in farmatting and he talks about how he got like conflicting orders from Demandred and from Tyim. Oh. Damn it. Another little like detail Demandred, that I didn't pick up on Demandred, so Tyim I And mean, obviously I knew him they wanted to say kill that. kill the Dragon Reborn. And then Demandred gives him orders and he's like, kill the Dragon Reborn. Do not tell anybody, even if they order you to, that I told you this. Don't tell taim Don't tell Moradin. Like like so there there's like they're conflicting. Yeah, but...
0: I'm assuming back then a fan would have said, "Of course, well, uh, well, what is yeah and well when, and, and you and that's include where, yourself on the list to, that's where, where I suspicion. believe
1: Robert Jordan like outright said like in in a quote i would have to I'd have to go dig through theory land again, but it was very clear by winter's heart that Taim was not the Mandred. yeah and, it's and sus- so but, but despite that, people were still arguing that he was oh that, I, I the would have end been one of, those of this people. book. Uh, the end of this book was another point where people were like, clearly he's a forsaken, you know. And uh, but a a new semi popular uh, theory popped up after this book, and that was Charles Gaibon. Some people thought Gaibon was Demandred,
0: the, the the Tower Guard. Charles Gaibon?
1: No, uh, the or the, the, the commander Camelon? of Elaine's
0: Tower Guard, Camelon yeah. Guard, the Queen's Guard.
1: Yep. Yeah, really? so there were some people who, who thought that he was too competent for his youth, and that uh, we had seen Demandred in the World of Dreams hanging around Camelin a lot, and the fact that Demandred is always jealous of Luz Theron, and, and thus Rand, and that he would uh, <gasps> then try to... With uh, Elaine? Oh, <laughs> oh I can Elaine. see how
0: people would get that, yeah. that instinct, yeah. though. That's interesting. That's so fascinating... that was a
1: fun theory. I never like got on board that one, but I was I was always entertained by it. Mm. And then of course the leading theory at this point was uh King Roadrin in murray
0: Yeah, yeah, Roadrin and yeah. being demanded. Be, be but which to play this, with. I love that.
1: Despite all of this, we have yet another hint in this book that the sharins are uh sizing up Randland. When Rand is in tear at the yeah. inn before he travels into the stone there's another sharon like a merchant in the common room
0: god damn it how did i miss that
1: yeah. i didn't pay i didn't Gets make the
0: connection with the, 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 the yeah. description i didn't make that connection
2: mhm most intriguing
0: So, going into our favorite scenes, um, I did hurriedly write three, because if you couldn't tell from my gasp of horrified surprise earlier, I did forget (laughs) previously to actually write down three. Um, I figured. Yeah, my very instinctual first impression knee-jerk three here are as follows. Um, uh, So I go from first to third, third to first. I'll go third to first. Rand losing his hand in that very, very brief showdown with Hmm. Semirog. That was so cool because at that point when I was a teenager, I had no idea what Samirag was up to. I had no idea what she was doing. She was just so out of place in that scene. Well, not out of place, but she was so um just she was just so immediately in there in your face before you were ready yeah. for it. And the fact that she managed to get the drop on the Dragon Reborn and actually do physical damage to the Dragon Reborn that no other Forsaken save Ishamael in the world of dreams had done to Rand previously. Like that was pretty cool. Semirag is one of the, I'll say Semiraj for those who prefer the soft G. I know I'm part of the minority, but um, the fact that she managed to actually damage Rand in some way and take his hand is part of the reason why she is so intimidating to me personally as mm-hmm. a character, as an antagonist. I don't really fear any of the forsaken as much as I fear Semiraj. Even Ishamael, even more, oh, yeah. just because of her reputation, the Lady of Pain, and and the fact that she managed to be the one to permanently scar, lose Theron was just, that's just ugh, intimidating as hell. It's like opening a box and finding a
2: cobra that's already bitten you inside.
0: Yeah, yeah, and of, and of course knowing what she forces Rand to do in the future, without yes, spoiling oof. too much um we assume of course you've read the entirety of the wheel of time series if you're at this point in the podcast um but yeah a Sem- top tier forsaken one of my favorite just in terms of how bad she is and how competent she is she was terrifying in uh lord of chaos with cabriana misandes or was it yeah. crown of swords when she was torturing the no, Aes Sedai? it was lord of chaos it was lord of chaos Mm-hmm. Oh my god, like what a nightmare it would be to, to even affiliate with somebody like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah that's my th- I couldn't agree more. <laughs> uh, so that's my third favorite. My second favorite would be the manor house battle. I know that's a that's a cop out answer at Lord Algarin's yeah. manor in tier. The fact that we had so many Shadow Spawn arriving so quickly and the fact that we finally got to see what Luz Theron's weaves look like against when he's fighting for his life against shadow spawn that was just so goddamn epic so that that had to be in my top three somewhere and that's where it's going to go because in my first place my number one favorite scene was a scene that gave me more than anything else a reason to keep reading the wheel of time after robert jordan passed away Mm. and that was the scene where finally finally we got to know when we got to read warren's letter to tom maryland
1: Mm. and then
0: they made the decision that they were we we found out that she was alive my girl, Maureen's alive and she can be rescued and they'd make the decision that they're going to rescue her that was the reason I was waiting up Restless for for Towers of Midnight that was the reason I was chomping at the bit to get through every single page of that book and why I I, I just continue with the the Wheel of Time honestly, in, in large part after it was announced that Robert Jordan had passed away because I was so excited to see Moiraine again and the fact that it was going to be Matt rescuing her and that Tom had been sitting on this letter the whole time and that they were ready to finally make that decision I was so hyped just the sheer amount of hype I got out of what that implies that's why I, that scene became number one for me
2: um, that's, that's an admirable list thank you, uh, thank you very much and I say that in large part because 66% of it is the same as mine. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> no no. Um, so so the manor house was obviously that, yeah, that was the
0: obvious one. I felt
2: bad for it.'s that. It's
0: the cool choice.
2: Like it, it's got How that cool factor in it. right? Um, my second is the uh, moraine discovery.
0: okay The yes. chilling
2: aspect of it and the implications of the future. A lot of emotions came up for me during that scene so it's the, it's the most serious scene um but my my number one is uh the kareed showing up to the camp everything from matt till uh matt and two on our man and wife okay is okay. My okay. okay 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 because that's got everything
0: I'm, yeah okay i right i'm gonna predict that drew has at least two matt scenes
1: uh, <laughs> so I'm gonna have some honorable mentions here because yeah, it is just yeah. I, it's too I hard. can't I can't not so one honorable mention Galad versus Valda oh yeah. absolutely fantastic one of the best duels that maybe be fifth the best for duel uh, uh, Robert Jordan wrote uh, the the uh, another honorable mention is the fight in the street in Madarin, mm. when uh you know matt sees two on go all badass and then he turns around and like tom and seleucia have taken care of their bundle of people and matt's like wow tom must have like really outdone himself <laughs> and completely misses the fact that it was all seleucia <laughs> and 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 seleucia makes a comment and, and tom's like i i didn't see anything you know <laughs> mm-hmm. Tom knows. He knows better. He's like, I'm an old man. I've already forgotten anything I'd like to see. wise. (laughs) Listen to Tom Um, Merrick. Yeah, definitely an honorable mention. Vows, honorable mention. Of course, phenomenal. Yes. But my three favorite scenes. Third, Furyk Kareed meeting with the other Banner General and having his discussion and going, like, breaking down Matt's
0: campaign and and
1: slowly realizing, oh, he's trying to get through the Malveed Narrows.
0: Gamalown. I'm looking at his name right here. How the hell you pronounce that?
1: Sorry, go ahead. Second one
0: is, as uh,
1: Pat said, Fear at Kareed showing up at the camp, Matt getting married, you know, and just having this succession of shock after shock after shock for Kareed. <laughs> and my favorite scene in the book is... Uh, is Nynaeve. In... Um, oh! In Golden Crane. The
2: Golden Crane flies for Tarman, God. Yeah, it is... I love you know, Nynaeve. I keep
1: looking believe having um, in this book. Uh, what was the guy's name? Uh, Aldragoran? Something like that? Aldragoran? Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and just having, again, having that scene not from Nynaeve's point of view. This is one of the things that Robert Jordan did so well in this book is having these massive moments viewed by outsiders because we are outsiders. And so we see them through the lens of somebody who has the same emotions we do, mm-hmm. ideally. Right? Yeah. And and in, in this moment where Aldra Gorin is just overcome you know, it—you know—they're jumping from their seats. The golden crane f- flies for Tarman Gaidon, you know, and he's laughing, and they're shouting, and like, it—it's just—I cannot read this scene without tears coming to my eyes. It is beautiful. Mm. It's just vintage naive.
0: That's how I you know, feel about the prologue of Towers of Midnight at uh, Heath Tower oh Heath Tower brilliant I feel that way about Heath Tower Sanderson fucking nailed that scene uh that was Robert Jordan that was what what are (laughs) you kidding me I love how Pat started cracking up before I even reacted to that because he knew that already that was uh, Robert Jordan I thought he only did the uh the uh the one dude at the beginning in uh The Gathering Storm who sees the silver and and black clouds and of course Robert Jordan did
1: one scene in each of the three prologues oh and, and Fascinating. We'll, we'll get to... I'm still
0: learning new stuff. That's we'll, awesome.
1: I'm going to try to keep this one in the back pocket. Some of our listeners will already know which scene he did in the Memory of Light prologue, but uh, I'm going to keep that one in my back Fairly pocket certain I know for, so. for the Memory of Light episodes. Uh, but yeah, so he did the scene in Gathering Storm with the farmer, like talking
0: to his buddy and saying like it's time to go to war. Yeah. And then yeah. he did
1: the scene in Heath Tower in Towers of
0: Midnight. Heath Towers, it was Robert Jordan. I am going to appreciate that scene so much more going forward now. Mm-hmm. I thought that was yep. the Sanderson thing because it reads so yeah. beautifully.
1: Yeah. So before we go into the final draft, do you guys have any wrap-up
0: points? Because I do. I mean, I do as well. Um, it's really just the one point, and I'm pretty sure it's the same point or one of the same points you're about to make. Um, I planned for like six months trying to find the right words to say after – Wrapping, knowing that I was going to rap Knife of Dreams. And at that time, I, I, I mean, after all this time, I really can't find anything to say. Like, nothing nothing feels like quite enough. Um, but I, I just want to say it simply, I suppose. Wherever he is or may be, I want to say thank you, Robert Jordan, for changing my life in the way that you did. I mean, he, you accomplished something that, in your lifetime, that the vast majority of us can only hope to emulate. And that legacy is undoubtedly going to live on through myth- and legend for as long as we continue to tell stories to one another like this one i want to raise a drink but i'll also assume that you have something to say about the passing of mr jordan after this one so we'll we'll, we'll drink together after you have uh to say what you've got to say
1: yeah so i mean <laughs> You stole a lot of my words with that. Yeah, I'm sorry there, but um, I,
0: I had to say something. I didn't know yeah, if I... Yeah, no no worries
1: at all. I mean, I think that is just a testament to what Robert Jordan created with this series and how he impacted people's lives. I know, had I not read The Wheel of Time, I would be living a very different life
0: Yeah, today. he may be the single biggest influence in my life. I can't think of anything that's influenced me as much.
1: Like, I, I'm a writer because of The Wheel of Time. I have the career I do because of The Wheel of Time. I have many of my best friends because of The Wheel of Time. I, I probably wouldn't have married my wife had I not become you know, a, a fan of reading fantasy because of The Wheel of Time. Like, it's, it, it, it is incredible just across all layers of my life, how Robert Jordan's writing has shaped the course of events that I have followed in the last going on 20 years now. It's it's impossible to put into words. And I think it is so wonderful, it is so wonderful that the last book we got from him was this book, was that it was Robert Jordan at the top of his game it was him starting to put the pieces back together after he spread them so widely apart. Mm. Laying the foundation for this ending that he envisioned back in the 80s. <clears throat> to the point where he thought he was going to do it in one more book. He had His vision was so tight and so narrow of what he was going to do next that he thought he was going to do it in one more book. And it was all possible because of this. And after, you know, this reread up through Knife of Dreams, I think I have changed my mind, and that this is my favorite book in the Wheel of Time, not Jesus. The Shadow Rising.
0: You had previously said The Shadow Rising was your favorite book of all time. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's and, it, and it's
1: tough. It's tough to really um, make the comparison because they're because of where they lie in the series shadow rising has a different structure to it and has like a more completed like concentrated character arcs you know throughout it from beginning to end whereas this book is very much a middle of the series book it's taking existing conflicts and character arcs and bringing them to their conclusions so it's tough to compare in that way but i had more fun reading this book than i did reading the shadow rising a few months ago Mm and and that's saying a lot because i love the shadow rising
0: yeah i know how much you love that book i of all people know how much yeah. you love that book
1: so that's just what what i wanted to you know to leave it at
0: pat
2: it's kind of anticlimactic in a sense <laughs> leaving me <till laughs> that's the what end. i said earlier <laughs> like all how fuck this, you um, follow up on that dude. yeah uh, a lot of my thoughts echo yours um a large part of my imaginary, uh, imaginative landscape uh, was built with The Wheel of Time, and thats I might not make use of it as an author, but it still has a very, very large impact on my life to this day. And the series has given me a great many fond memories. A great many. It's oh,
0: impossible yeah. to overstate, really. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's the because you, of The Wheel of guys, Time that this... Just... Podcast exists. That's why. I, that's how I met Drew.
2: You guys kind of said it, it all. So, uh, so, I will propose a toast to Robert
0: Jordan. To Robert Jordan. James Oliver Rigney Jr. Thank you very Rest much
2: for what you gave us. If any of you listeners right now have dry throats and dry eyes, <laughs> question whether you have a soul.
0: <laughs> and uh I mean, mine are kind of dry, but I'm in a gonna... On that it's note, amazing. I think
1: it is time for the final draft. I do. Rob, I do. And, and I'll off. kick
0: us off because I have the, uh, the amusing choice I went for this week. But I have to tell a story first. Lend me thine ears, boys and girls, because I have good news and I have very, very bad news. So I discovered five, six days ago now what is the single most delicious brew I have ever graced my tongue with. Oh. I have never tasted anything in terms of beer or anything that can be even loosely considered beer as delicious as this was it's called sorry this is from double trouble brewing company it's a 6.3% IPA from okay. it's a, sorry it's called hops and robbers pineapple <laughs> IPA Okay. That's what it is here, and it's got a it's got a big old fancy yellow container. It's got a lot of interesting artwork, lots of contrast on it. It was the pineapple, obviously, that drew my eye at first. Besides the witty name, Hops and Robbers, I loved that. And it was the the, the single best thing I've ever tasted, like wow. not ever tasted, but as far as beer goes, like it was ambrosia. It was amazing. I love pineapple. So now for the bad news. Um, in the past, I've been getting. I think I've mentioned this on uh, Final Drafts previously but I've been getting a lot of hangover symptoms just from very, very small amounts of beer compared to how much, for example, whiskey I like to drink. Um, Drew, you might have actually suggested at one point that I might be allergic or intolerant of hops. And I'm pretty sure my stepdad has proposed that same thing as well, that I may be allergic or supposedly intolerant of hops in some way because within 90 seconds of finishing this beer... It came back up. Oh, no. Projectile. It came straight back up and straight back out. My stomach hit that hard, re- that hard no button. And I mean, I had just finished cleaning the kitchen, so it was like the sink was nice and clean and pristine. It was just oh, beer. Man. It was just beer. It, I. Had, it was like literally pouring a beer into the sink because it had been that soon after I finished that beer. My stomach went oh <laughs> no and just ejected it immediately. Oh my gosh. So, I discovered what I found was the most delicious beer I've ever had in my 28 years of life and my stomach very vehemently vehemently disagreed. A cruel so, fate.
1: Indeed. A very cruel yeah, fate.
0: I, I am uh, I'm so devastated by that because this was <laughs> this was so good. It was so good. The pineapple I mean even like when I was sitting there afterwards going oh my god and I had like a little burp and it's pineapple. It's so nice. It was such a good beer. <laughs> <laughs> But that's from Double Trouble Brewing Company Hops and Robbers, Pineapple IPA If you can tolerate hops I would highly recommend that one At least it can still taste good On the way back It was like drinking (laughs) I'm telling you, it was seconds It was like a minute after I finished drinking it Damn, wow Granted I didn't slam it, it took me 2 or 3 minutes to drink 5 minutes to drink, but still Okay, well Well
2: Pat, what have you been drinking? Uh, an old classic for an old classic. Okay. Uh, Sippin' Pretty from uh, Odell Brewing. Uh, no, I've had that on the podcast many uh, times. Yeah, yeah. Sippin' Pretty. A, <laughs> yeah, it's a staple I think I remember mine,
0: chuckling over the pun. The good yeah.
2: old pinkish colored fruit sour. Yeah. Very nice. So, Drew.
1: So, I am drinking something special today. Uh, this is the only bottle I have of it. It's the only bottle I'll ever get of it. Uh, This is a dark sour ale from New Belgium Brewing Company. It's a dark sour brewed with cocoa nibs, cocoa husks, and coffee, and bottled on nitro. So, like, you know, nitrous oxide, very smooth, fine bubbles, creamy, creamy character. And, you know, a sour chocolate coffee ale. Very strange. Delicious. I it, it really blew me away when I had this for the first time because I was not expecting it to be very good and, and it was excellent. But I I had to break it open for this episode because this is the last Purely Robert Jordan book. It deserved a special beer. And even more so because the title of it is perfect for the themes of the climaxes at the end of this book. This beer is called Exquisite Extraction.
0: Ooh. Ooh. That one tickled me pretty. I like that.
1: This is a book that sees the extraction of Fayil from the Shido captivity, the extraction of Elaine from the hands of the Black Gajah, the extraction of Matt's army and forces from the grip of the Shida, or the Shanchan rather, Uh, the extraction of Tuan from the danger presented by Elbar and Surath and especially the Matt points there is no better word than exquisite for what Matt pulls off <laughs> against the Shanchan in the second half of
0: this book I love it it's a very nice, like high level kind of a pun But I love the... it but how many connections it's able to make though you're right it's absolutely a theme for what's happening at the end of this book and where it's going where it's aiming us for our ending from Brandon Sanderson indeed alright
1: so this has been episode 58 of the inking out loud podcast yeah buddy next up we are diving straight into the gathering storm we will be reading up through the first 25 chapters ending with chapter 25 in darkness Uh, we will be having a special guest on that episode as well so keep an eye out for that if you want to get early access to it, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com inkingoutloud. In addition to early access, some of our other tiers give you, you know, uh, Rob and I post short fiction or excerpts from novels every month. You can get access to our bonus short episodes on general fantasy science fiction topics or short stories or novellas. You can request a book for us to read. Uh, We just covered the first Witcher book at the request of one of our supporters, and coming up in a few weeks, we're going to do uh, Dragon the first book in the Deathgate cycle. Uh, As always, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey. With me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Yep. And our special guest and sound engineer, Patrick McCaffrey.
2: Pleasure as always, gentlemen.
1: Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.